0: Where are we at? Oh, no.
1: Well, I turned into a gremlin. Yes.
0: Where's my tiny little hammer? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Lost your hammer. It's fine. I, we I survived, survived over a year without it on Zoom. It'll yeah. probably be fine.
2: There. Good. Let me make sure I'm ready here. I only got to use the hammer like twice in the, in the full year. In a I mean, full a,
0: year, uh, yeah.
2: Hammer I mean, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Sherry. <laughs> missed my chance. <laughs> <laughs> He's oh, looking gosh. at it longingly. <laughs>
0: okay, are we all ready?
3: Ready And Kurt, we're ready? Stay ready.
0: Okay. Welcome, everyone. Oops. To the um, Tuesday, April 19th, 2022 City Commission meeting. Um, First, we're going to uh, recess into an executive session. Uh, When we return, we will have our announcements uh, for the public, how to behave for public comment and other things. Um, So if anyone has a motion for our executive session...
4: I move that we recess into executive session for approximately 45 minutes to discuss a personnel matter involving a city employee pursuant to the the non-elected personnel matter exception, KSA 754319, subsection B1. The justification of the executive session is to protect employee privacy. At the end of the executive session, the city commission meeting will resume its regular meeting in the city commission room.
0: Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Uh, that is five to zero. Okay. okay we're ready now. Uh, welcome back to the Tuesday, April nineteenth, twenty twenty-two, in City Commission meeting. Uh, We have nothing to report. Thank you. We have nothing to report Uh, to begin. We will go ahead and allow staff to give us some of our rules uh, so that the public is aware of how these meetings operate. And so we'll start with Porter.
5: Thank you, Mayor. Good evening, everybody. I just have a few housekeeping items for this zoom meeting tonight. Meeting is being recorded and broadcast in the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25 please remember to mute yourself during the meeting unless you are speaking the chat function for the meeting is disabled all chats will go directly to me unless you are participating during the meeting, please turn your video off this allows the active meeting participants to be seen on screen. You will still be able to hear the meeting. When you are participating in the meeting, please turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send me a chat. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. Um, and now I'll turn it over to Sherry and our city clerk.
0: Thank you, Porter. And just a few notes on public comment. When the mayor calls for in-person public comment, individuals attending in-person should approach the podium to indicate they wish to speak. The podium can be raised and lowered, and we encourage you to use this feature to ensure your comments are heard. Please remember to state your name before speaking. Individuals participating via Zoom should use the raise hand function to indicate they wish to speak. When you are called on, please unmute and state your name before speaking. All comments will be limited to three minutes. Thank you. Thank you both. Uh, The next item on our agenda is to approve the order of the agenda. Do I have any uh, motions? Uh, Move to approve the agenda. Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 That passes five to zero. Uh, now we have recognitions and proclamations. First, we would like to proclaim the week of April 25th to 29th 2022 as Tree City USA week and Friday, April 29th, 2022 as Arbor Day. And we do have someone here to speak with us.
6: Yes. Good evening, Mayor Shipley and commissioners. My name is Tyler Fike. I'm the horticulture and forestry manager uh, for Parks and Recreation. Um, in the last year, we lost two kind of really foundational folks within our department that helped with our urban forest, um, representing almost 80 years of experience in Crystal Miles and John McDonald. Uh, so that's a lot of a lot of experience to replace. Um, and I'm happy to report that I'm really confident in the team that we're we're utilizing to do that um so between myself and and levi park and the forestry supervisor we have over 25 years of of urban forestry experience and coming up on 10 years of experience with the city of lawrence so um, i think we'll make a great team and then also we added mike lang as the horticulture supervisor was previously the landscape manager at ku for 17 years um, and has 30 years of experience in the industry so uh, a great team to do this we're celebrating our 44th consecutive receipt of the tree city usa uh, designation which is a a great recognition of the 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 community's input and interest in in creating a great urban canopy Um, at that we uh, in March, we attended the um, recognition event for that. Um, And the Kansas Forest Service has recently published some interesting GIS data looking at canopy coverage within municipalities. Um, And they have also correlated some of that data with census data, um, both uh, income and and racial data. Um, So I think that's going to be interesting to look at going forward, Um, and they will be running that scan, I think, approximately every four years for these Tree City USA communities, so we can look at how our urban canopy cover is changing throughout that time. Um, With our report last year for 2021, uh, the city forestry division removed 600 um, either dead or damaged hazardous trees, Um, along with that we planted 583 so we're a little bit shy of replacing all of those. Uh, We've got a really strong benchmark to pass that this year, Uh, and then we also pruned 1,806 trees. Those three metrics combined together uh, to uh, inform one of our key performance indicators in the strategic plan. Uh, So that's something that we're really tracking closely and and, uh, working with community partners to make sure that we reach... Couple programs in 22, 2022. We're looking at. Um, you probably realized or noticed our, our sapling giveaway during the St. Patrick's Day parade was a big success, and we got a lot of feedback that 500 were, was not nearly enough. So uh, we'll probably boost that up next year a little bit. Um, I'm working on learning the Master Street Tree Program for um, planting new trees in uh, new developments in town. Um, I've had a little communication with Commissioner Sellers on the Naismith Valley Park, uh, rehabilitating that forested area after the sewer, project, sewer line project. Going going. going through there. And then right now, uh, if you look at our wooded areas and some of the undeveloped parks, you're seeing a couple kind of invasive issues that we're dealing with. So most of the green in the understory you're seeing is uh, from from honeysuckle. Um, It's kind of the first thing that leaves out in the in the springtime. Um, That's an invasive plant that's kind of choking out our native forests. And then also the ornamental pear trees that are the white bloom that you're seeing. Um, There's a couple here right at the riverfront parking garage, we're going to be removing those ornamental landscape trees have kind of regressed and gone native and are being quite invasive in our areas. So um, there's a, there's been a lot of talk in the community recently, uh, regionally about those trees. So we're kind of looking at some plans to deal with that. So with that, I thank you for this proclamation. And
0: thank, thank you. you for being here. All right. Whereas in 1872, J. Sterling Morton proposed to the Nebraska Board of Agriculture that a special day be set aside for the planting of trees. And whereas the year 2022 marks the 150th anniversary of this holiday called Arbor Day and was first observed with the planting of more than a million trees in Nebraska. And whereas trees can reduce the erosion of our precious topsoil by wind, water, cutting heating and cooling costs, moderate the temperature, clean the air, produce oxygen, and provide habitat for wildlife. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> And whereas trees are a renewable resource, giving us paper, wood for our homes, fuel for our fires and countless other wood products. And whereas trees in our city increase property values enhance the economic vitality of business areas and beautify our community. And whereas trees are a source of joy and spiritual renewal. And whereas Lawrence, Kansas has been recognized in its 44th year as a Tree City USA by the National Arbor Day Foundation and the Kansas Forest Service and desires to continue its tree planting ways. Now, therefore, I, Courtney Shipley, Mayor of the City of Lawrence, Kansas, do hereby proclaim the week of April 25th to 29th, 2022 as Tree City U.S. A week and Friday, April 29th, 2022, as Arbor Day, and urge all citizens to support efforts to care for our trees and woodlands, to support our city's community forestry program, and to plant trees to gladden the hearts and promote the well being of present and future generations. Thank you. Thank you again. Um, Now we would like to recognize the 2022 Boys and Girls Club of Lawrence Youth of the Year.
7: Good evening. My name is Monica Dittmer and I am proud to be here as your CEO of the Boys and Girls Club of Lawrence. Uh, On behalf of our board and staff, I just want to thank you all uh, for your continued support of our Boys and Girls Club programming and for inviting us here to share our Youth of the Year with you. Uh, Just a little background about Youth of the Year so you know what we're talking about. Since 1947, Youth of the Year has been Boys and Girls Club of America's premier recognition program celebrating the extraordinary achievements of club members. Each year, one exceptional young person from a Boys and Girls Club is selected to be the National Youth of the Year. The National Youth of the Year serves as both an exemplary ambassador for over 4 million Boys and Girls Club youth, and as a strong voice for all of our nation's young people. Youth of the Year participants embody the values of leadership, service, academic excellence, and healthy lifestyles. The young lady I'm about to introduce to you all is not only our local Lawrence Youth of the Year, but was recently named as Kansas State Youth of the Year as well. In June, she will compete in the regional competition in Texas. Arabella Gipp is a freshman at Lawrence High School. You heard it right, she's a freshman at Lawrence High School. The daughter of Jessica Gipp, Arabella has been a club kid since she was five years old. She jumps into as many BGC activities as possible, dancing in multiple lights on talent shows, playing on our volleyball and basketball teams, and was the manager for the Ball for All Lakers team at our Center for Great Futures. (laughs) Bella just wrapped up her first high school and club volleyball seasons, and you can find her at our Center for Great Futures most every day after school. Bella maybe wants to uh, major in political science and is undecided on colleges, but she potentially wants to be a politician and for sure a volleyball coach. So let me get out of the way and
8: let's hear from Arabella Yip. A wise man once said, the only constant in life is change. It takes in people decades to learn and accept this. But for me, I realized this at a very young age. I'm an only child of single mother. My father chose a life of dealing drugs instead of fatherhood. And childhood moves very quickly when you're only a child of a single parent. I didn't hang out with people my age growing up. So I learned how to talk, act, and think like an adult. If I didn't, I wasn't seen as an equal. Just a little kid who didn't know anything. My mom, Nana, and I took on life together, but on December 22nd, 2017, everything changed. That day, our trio became a duo. I lost my Nana. My world came crashing down. I felt so many emotions I never knew existed. And I cried until I didn't have any more tears left. For someone who only had one parent, my Nana really made our family whole. Losing my Nana is a change that I will never get used to. But I was recently hit with another change, anxiety. I was diagnosed this past summer while I was getting ready for high school and volleyball, but no one really knew I was struggling the only thing everyone saw were my grades. And that was an indicating thing because I had straight A's. To be honest, I had a pretty hard time adjusting to high school. Not because of the class load or how difficult my classes were, but because high school is unpredictable. I didn't like not being in control. But the boys and girls club was different. Although BGC did change from elementary school to teen center, it changed in the best way possible. In elementary school, you get to the point where you feel too old to be at BGC. By the fourth grade, it wasn't cool liking going to the Boys and Girls Club. But when I came to the Teen Center, that completely changed. I found a place where I could be truly myself, so I didn't care if people thought it wasn't cool. Summer BGC at the Teen Center is the best experience. Since we're there together for 10 and a half hours a day, we really get to know each other. I met Mr. Chris and Miss Ruth and some of my best friends at Summer BGC. When you have that much time together, you really become a family. Everyone is in everyone's business. I can talk to the staff about anything, from school to mental health and even date ideas. That is not something everyone has access to and I'm very grateful for every single one of them. I've been going to BGC since kindergarten. I've been writing this speech for almost that long. The people I've met at the club are some of my biggest role models. My mom is amazing, but she knew I needed more. That's why she brought me here when I was this big. She knew I needed Miss Ruth and Mr. Chris and Mr. Henry and everyone else who's helped me through the good times and the bad. They've reminded me to take a step back and be as in the present. They're right. I won't be a kid for long. Now, it's time to strive to be the best Arabella I can be. Thank you.
0: Great job, Arabella. Thank you for coming. And I, um, I believe in you. I think you can do this Texas thing. Thank you so much for coming. Um, All right, uh, let's move on to our consent agenda. All matters listed on the consent agenda are considered under one motion and will be approved by one motion. There will be no separate discussion on those items. If discussion is desired, that item will be removed from the consent agenda and will be considered separately. Members of the public wishing to speak to an item that has been pulled off the consent agenda will be limited to three minutes for comments. Are there any items that Commissioners would like to remove from the consent agenda at this time. Not seeing any. Is there anyone who would like to remove something from the consent agenda in the audience? The physical audience? Not seeing anything. Sherry, is there anyone online? Sherry and Porter, is there anyone online raising their hand to remove something from the consent agenda? Uh, Nick Kuzmiak. Okay.
9: Yes, I would like hey. to move item D8 if that's possible.
0: All right, thank you. Can I just get clarification? Did you say D8?
9: Yes, is that right? D.8.A. D8A, it's like a sub of a sub item.
0: Thank you. And Mayor, I just want to make sure because I thought there was an individual prior to the meeting who said they had an item they wanted to pull from the consent agenda. It was a set of minutes. Okay. Okay. All right. Anyone else online, just to make sure.
10: Okay. There, Shipley. Oh. I had uh, also requested D eight A. So I guess oh, we've okay. got it covered.
0: Okay. Well, we'll give you a chance to comment then when we get there. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, uh, okay. Let's let's move on. Any motions?
2: I move for approval of the consent agenda, with the exception of D.8A. A
0: second, I have a first and a second. All those in favor,
2: Aye. 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 Aye.
0: Um, not opposed. Um, let's go ahead. Um, this was pulled uh, first by Nick Kuzmiak. Let's allow um, him to uh, discuss what his concerns are.
9: OK, good evening, commissioners. Nick Kuzmiak, my address is 1228 Delaware Street, and I'm actually here representing the Multimodal Transportation Commission. Um, i'm the current chair for the year of 2022 and uh we agreed to basically submit public comment in writing and i decided to show up in well in person just to kind of hammer it home so um i come to you this evening on um on behalf of lawrence mmtc to uh, request the consideration of appointing a representative from mmtc to the steering committee that will serve to guide the revisions and updates to the land development code um there's not really too much more i need to say that's not already in the written comments, uh, I would suggest that you look over that simply because it, it references a couple of specifics that were in the RFP that kind of point to the link between transportation and land use that I feel kind of helped serve our case. And um, that's basically it. I'm glad to see this uh, steering committee being appointed soon. It looks like a pretty good roster so far. It was just that one omission that we thought we could maybe speak to. So thank you.
0: Thank you, um, let's be sure, commissioners don't have any questions? I mean, as long as
5: somebody pulled it, go ahead. I, do, I just <laughs> wanna just clarify, um, my, my understanding is that the actual choosing of um, individuals, community members for the steering committee, it's not set in stone as to what was described in the staff memo, is that correct? That's something that can be changed.
9: Hi, Brandon Thorgate, planning and development analyst. Um, Yeah, that is completely true. Um, We can adjust that composition of the steering committee um, as directed by the commission, um, and then bring back that resolution for you to adopt and then subsequently appoint the members.
5: Okay, thank you. That's what I thought. Thank you. The makeup or the appointments? The. Make sure I understand. Actually, both. Okay. <laughs> like they listed out like one person, yeah, one this, one this, one this. Yeah. It's not, that's the part I don't want set in stone.
0: Okay. Then uh, uh since you're there, can you tell us specifically when we'll discuss those? Because I, I have a similar question to uh, Vice Mayor Larson.
9: Um, I don't. I guess I would look maybe to share your Porter about the appropriate time to discuss those. Um, I I don't know if we could receive that direction from you now and then bring back a resolution to the next available meeting or what the procedure is for that.
2: Um, I guess I understood the resolution. We were adopting the resolution tonight. Yeah, that's where I included that. Right. That included this list of. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the resolution that second action item resolution seventy four twenty one includes that list. Now that doesn't mean you can't ch- change it later, but I thought. Yeah. It. Because I and I would be interested in
5: discussing the changes. Okay. If uh, that's the if that's what we have to do to.
0: Who do we want to move that towards, Craig? Maybe I'm going to call you. Who's going to help us iron that out? Not in this exact moment. Staff member. So
11: so you just, you just want to know, you just want to bring it back here so that you can have a discussion and modify it and then adopt it. We can do that next meeting.
0: Does that sound good to you? Yeah. I had, I had, thank you. Similar uh, interest in the makeup. Is that efficient for staff? Sure. Okay. Everyone feel good there. Um. Uh, Let's go ahead and do public comment on this item before we make a decision. Is there anyone who has public comment uh, in the room? Not seeing anyone. Um, Chris Chris Tilden, I know you pulled this also. I didn't know if you had any specific concerns.
10: Uh, Just just a couple quick comments, if that's okay. I am Chris Tilden. I live at 1121 Williamsburg Court. Uh, I'm current chair of the Louisville-Douglas County Coalition. Um, My original request to pull this item really related to to Nick's comment, and that is the the really strong connection between transportation and land use planning. So I certainly uh, support uh, the proposal of the MMTC to have a dedicated position from that. Uh, commission included on the steering committee. I would also note that there was one uh, one interest uh, expressed interest, and that was from Live Well's Healthy Built Environment Work Group, which is also a, a group that for almost ten years has really been working on promoting active transportation. Uh, there's been a lot of discussions about the uh, about land use and how it impacts that. So I guess uh, in addition to the MMTC role, I know there is a at-large representative that's appointed uh, by the mayor and given uh, Livewell's interest in participating, I would uh, recommend and request that that at-large position potentially be filled by a representative from Livewell's Healthy Built Environment Work Group. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Chris. Any other comment from online about this item?
3: Chris Flowers? Hi, this is Chris Flowers and I just I, I'm late to this meeting, but I am against Livewell just because of their anti-smoking stuff, so I whatever it is, I am against placing someone from Livewell on it. Thank you.
0: anyone else online with comments let's bring it back to the commission i do want to make sure we don't need to give uh staff a little bit of direction here i don't want to surprise them at some future date um were there again but also not wanting to take up too much time here um were there particular things you like to see added vice mayor
5: yeah i i just would like to have a discussion about the makeup of the of the steering committee Mm -hmm. um based on the list that's in the memo
0: yeah and i would share my concern maybe you shared this one um previously uh commissions have been loath to put um city commissioners on uh, advisory boards—that one concerned me. Did you see that as well?
5: No, this is a steering committee, which is similar, like Plan Twenty Forty. Yeah, I that The the um, chair was uh, the commissioner's Stelman, um, I think it was, and Amex at the time. Mm-hmm. So it's, that's been my experience: is that the steering committees are, are different?
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. I just want to make sure there's a note. Yeah, that's something
2: we have not done in the past. So I just, is anything? I was going to say, I also note that I think right before the meeting, um, Bobby Floyd sends us an email. It didn't make it into the packet that she had some comments too. She wasn't here tonight, but that'd be something else to... (laughs) Another, if we put this on a future agenda, we'll hear from host. Well. <laughs> yeah,
0: because I didn't, I didn't see that. Another yeah. interest group. Yeah, I did not either. All right.
2: Uh,
1: right now, we're just approving the resolution, right?
0: Yeah. So we're going to leave out that portion. Whoever makes the motion.
2: There's there's two action items. One we can just defer. The second action item.
0: Okay. Well, I'll
2: go ahead and move we authorize the city manager to execute the professional services agreement with clarion associates in the amount of $383,650 for consulting work for the land development code update. Second.
0: I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 None opposed?
2: I move that we defer resolution 7421 to the regular agenda on the next meeting.
0: Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Thank you. Passes five to zero. If I didn't say that loud enough, Sherry, I apologize. Um, This moves us on to public comment. The public is allowed to speak on items or issues that are not scheduled for discussion on the agenda. As a general practice, the commission will not discuss or debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions on items presented during this time. Individuals should address the comments and questions to the commission. Each person will be limited to three minutes. Are there is there anyone in the room who would like to make public comment?
12: Hi, my name is Dr. Justin Spies. Um, I have a PhD in human development and a master's in man, uh, marriage and family therapy, uh, both from K-State. I have a bachelor's in addiction counseling from Washburn. I taught as an assistant professor at Washburn in the family and human services department for six years. I was a licensed marriage and family therapist and licensed master addiction counselor here in Kansas through the BSRB and have worked as both in the past. I was a board member of the BSRB addiction counseling subcommittee and served as a secretary for the STA care center board here in Lawrence, where i where prior to that I worked as a child therapist for children who had been sexually abused. I served in the United States Navy Submarine Service from 2000-2009 on the Fast Attack Submarine USS Springfield out of Groton, Connecticut. When I got out of the Navy in 2009, I was an E-6, which is a first-class petty officer. I'm now running for the Douglas County District 1 uh, County Commissioner seat, currently held by Patrick Kelly. I'm speaking here tonight to get my message out because no one will give me any airtime let alone any positive airtime. Lots of people went along with the mass mandate madness, for example, on planes. And as we recently saw, all it took was one judge, one man to change that, to strike down the mandate, one person. That's all we had to do this entire time was to find our courage and stand up. That's all we have to do going forward. The reason we didn't stand up is because there are dire consequences to doing so. And I get that. I protested these criminal child mass mandates every day for seven months straight. And it cost me a lot. It cost me my life. Everything I worked for my entire adult life was lost because I stood up for what was right, both here in Lawrence with mandates and elsewhere in my life. During my protest, I've heard countless people talk about the damage these mandates have done, unnecessarily done to these relationships with family and friends, how divisive these mandates were. <clears throat> and I'm right there with them. These are real people with real lives, and it's not a joke. The policies put in place by these morons and the county commissioners and the school district created a situation in our society where there were two citizens, first class and second class. If you did what you were told, like a good boy or girl, you got to be a first class citizen. Lucky you. If, on the other hand, you couldn't and or or didn't want to. Do what you were told. You were relegated to second-class citizens. I understand it takes courage to risk losing everything by standing up for what's right. That fear uh, prevents us from taking action. But courage is the only thing that's going to get us out of this mess that our compliance created. Don't believe everything you read online about me. Come talk to me and learn the truth. You'd be surprised. I'm like the old uh, neighborhood guy on on Home Alone who everyone's afraid of. But then you get to know him. He's like, he's not a bad guy, right? These people hate me. The papers hate me. So they're only going to publish the worst about me. And I want you to think why, why they hate me so much. Why do they want me out so bad? I'm just a minor threat, man. I'm just a minor threat. After all, my my message all along was that mass on kids is child abuse. It's not like I was out there raising awareness for neo-Nazis, although they called me that many times and other things for sure. But what I am is someone who was a child therapist for children who had been sexually abused. I'm someone who has a Ph.D. in human development, which includes child development. The reason why I went into human development after my master's in marriage and family therapy is that while I was teaching numerous developmental courses up at K-State as a grad student, I was finding that the developmental knowledge, the developmental knowledge I was acquiring was applying more and more in my therapy practice. That's your time. Now I always apply developmental knowledge to the world around me and the mass on kids was obviously wrong. My campaign slogan is fuck these liberal motherfuckers.
0: Is there any further public comment?
13: Well, that was a good one to follow. Uh, Good evening, Madam Mayor. Vice Mayor, Commissioners, Ted Boyle, North Lawrence Improvement. Uh, we're still looking for that street light on 3rd and Pleasant and 8th and Walnut. And, you know, talk about policies. What I keep hearing is that was uh, we can't have that street light because of a policy that was adopted in the mid 90s. Uh, that street light should be at the end of the block. Well, I want to know about policies on new construction. Uh, Because we assumed that new construction required, uh, they put a sidewalk in front of the proposed construction. And uh, at 7th and Lincoln, uh, there where there's going to be three warehouses that are going to be rented to construction companies or whatever. There was uh, supposed to be a sidewalk in front of that over 100 feet long. And uh, it went to the variance appeals and I spoke at that, commented at that and uh, then it came to the commission and you all passed it without the sidewalk. Now, policies what is what is the sidewalk policy on new construction and why was that sidewalk, deleted from the project and we didn't know about that until a week ago yesterday at our neighborhood meeting when i was talking about uh getting the sidewalks in north lawrence and the city project engineer come up to me and said oh ted you guys didn't get that sidewalk and i said what the hell are you talking about said no city passed it without requiring a sidewalk and a sidewalk on that side of the street over hundred feet long, 150 feet long. And it will connect, it would have connected with the sidewalk at 7th and Lincoln Street on the south side of the street, all the way to North Second, all the way to the underpass. Now, Parks and Rec is talking about putting a sidewalk on the north side, on the park side. Well, there's no sidewalk on the north side of Lincoln Street, all the way to 2nd Street. So what happened to that policy? And why did you pass that without the sidewalk requirement? And yet y'all keep referring back to a policy in the mid nineties about streetlights. So what's the deal folks?
0: Thanks, Ted. Is there any other in-person public comment? Uh, Let's look then online. Sherry, do you see anyone? Chris
3: Flowers. Hi, this is Chris Flowers, and I just like just I would just like to follow up on the sidewalks. Um, I know you all are planning on doing some kind of survey, I guess, about sidewalks, and I I'm totally okay with that, and I support doing that. I was just asking. I just wish I I want you all to when you're doing this to, to to separate sidewalks from bicycles and and ve- like vehicles. Like I I get this feeling that y'all might try to lump bicycles and and pedestrians mm-hmm. together as an alternative to to vehicles, but I think it's all three should be separate like if we're talking about the city taking over sidewalks and potentially you like funding it for, from other pro like I forget what the term was other other um other like infrastructure projects though then I think we we should be able to put but like stuff like um, the bicycle boulevards on the cutting block, if we are going to be taking over the cost of sidewalks. So I, I just am asking when you do that, that listening stuff about sidewalks and also be sure to do something about if 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 property owners should take care of them or if the public sh- or should, because um. Basic. I also get the feeling I'm seeing like a campaign, basically. I think the people who don't want to pay for sidewalks are going to be arguing the importance of them so that the government will take over paying for them. But I mean, I'm I'm OK with the message. I just think some of it's going to be kind of fake because I think they're just going to be arguing for stuff to get out paying for sidewalks. And I'm just wondering, well, when the time comes to put in sidewalks now that the city, you know, controls it, if they're still going to be for or against the sidewalks being put in their yards, because I think some people are going to be lying about their feelings about how important sidewalks is to get out of paying for them and when the time comes to have the sidewalks put in their yard then i th- I think they might become a little bit nimby and not not want them in their yard you know maybe pedestrian issues aren't important at that time but i, I was just throwing that out there and also i want to throw out I do hope that our local media is fair to all candidates running. even I, I don't support everyone, you know, some of their, their views, but I, I do think we should try, all try to be fair and all and in, in for all the candidates. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Chris. Anyone else online who would like to make general public comment? I don't see any other comments, Mayor. All right. Thank you, Sherry. Let's move on then to our regular agenda items. Uh, number one is to regi- to receive an update on the return of Ngjuje Wahobe to the Khan
14: Nation. I see... Tony Wheeler is coming forward. Good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. I'm Tony Wheeler, the city attorney. And yes, I am uh, part of a team that has been working to return in Wahobe to the Kaw Nation. And the purpose of tonight's presentation is to give you an update of of what we've been working on and um, what is on the horizon. So with that, I would like to introduce Dr. Jay Johnson from Kansas University I'd ask him to step forward and um, he'll kick off the, the update this evening.
15: Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Mayor and Commissioners. Uh, My name is Jay Johnson, Professor at KU and a long-term Lawrence resident. Um, I have the honor to be representing the Njujie Wahoe Sacred Red Rock Project. Um, Wanted to clarify for you today, we wanted to give you an update, but I wanted to start with a quick clarification because there's been some reporting that the grant by the Mellon Foundation, the very generous grant of $5 million Was made to kaw nation and that is incorrect it is made to the university of kansas Mm -hmm. and i'm serving as the facilitator of our leadership team Um, our leadership team in addition to myself from the university of kansas um, we have uh casey messick braun and sydney Purcell from the spencer museum we have tony wheeler representing the interests of the city we have dave lowenstein who's here with me tonight Pauline sharp, uh, Dave and Pauline were part of the original group that led to the to the request for the return of the rock. And we have Mr. James Pepper Henry, who I believe is online, and is representing um, the interests of coordination as their vice chair. Um, we wanted to give you this update because after many months of working with the Mellon Foundation, we were able to get the award of the grant. Um, and we're looking forward to moving forward uh, with all of the stakeholders represented by our leadership team and, and others as we move forward in our community engagement. So I'm going to turn it over to Dave Lowenstein.
16: So I have a presentation I want to share is that Dave, can I run it here? Whatever you like. That work for you? Yeah. Whatever you You whatever you like. Just help me click through it here. Get to the beginning.
5: Hang on. Let me get it set up. And I need to share my screen so folks on Zoom can see.
16: That's not the first one there, but. Oh. Got to go back.
17: There. Oh, I saw saw it. There it is. Got it.
16: Tell me when you're good. Yeah. Go ahead. So, will you help me click through this or should I do it up here? Just tell me when. Okay. Um, Well, Mayor Shipley and commissioners, it is a great honor to be here tonight. And thank you so much to Professor Jay Johnson uh, for introducing. I just wanted to share a brief uh, presentation, give you some context about the Njuje Wahobe Sacred Red Rock Project. Next slide. Thanks, Porter. Hundreds of thousands of years ago, as you may be aware, glaciers from the last ice age dislodged uh, giant quartzite boulders, among other things, from their homes in what we now call South Dakota. Next slide. Some of these rocks, known as glacial erratics, found new homes in northeastern Kansas, and one of them was deposited near the confluence of the Shunganunga Creek and the Kansas River about 17 miles west of here, which is on the map as the red dot you see there on the screen. This rock lived in the river at over 10 feet tall and 28 tons for thousands of years. And indigenous peoples of this place admired and revered this rock, including the Kanza. Next slide. Descendants of the people who colonized this area and forced the Kanza to move time and time again also admired the rock. And as this headline shows, took it from the river in 1929. Next slide. The rock was moved to what was then called Riverview or Bridge Park on the south bank of the Caw, just across the street from here. Next slide. And on October 11th, 1929, the rock was dedicated as a new monument. Next slide. Quote, to the pioneers of Kansas who in devotion to human freedom came into a wilderness Suffered hardships and faced danger and death to found this state in righteousness. The bronze plaque affixed to the rock, which you should go over and look at if you haven't yet, makes no mention of the Kansa people. The park was then renamed Robinson Park for Kansas's first governor, Charles Robinson, and one of the first leaders of what was then Haskell. Institute. Next slide. The sacredness of Njuje Wahobe was not a secret, ever. And in the late 1800s, the Kanza documented the significance of Njuje Wahobe in this prayer song chart of sacred sites, and it is at the top here as number 11. For the last 93 years, the park and the rock have remained unchanged and in some ways forgotten due to its inaccessibility. We all know about the traffic that goes around Robinson Park. Next slide. The first phase of our project, as Jay mentioned, between the rock and a hard place. Open dialogue about the park and the rock and created a platform for imagining its future. Pauline Eads Sharp, who you should know, uh, whose grandmother, Lucy Taia Eads, was the first and only woman chief of the Kanza tribe, was chief in 1929, when the rock was moved to Robinson Park. Pauline, myself, citizens of Khan Nation, and many others, including Professor Jay Johnson and Brett Ramey, who's with us here tonight, Tony Wheeler, collaborated with researchers of geography and indigenous studies to explore the park's stories and engage our community in envisioning new ways of interpreting and understanding its significance. Next slide. This led to a remarkable moment when Nation formally asked for the Rock's return. And even a more remarkable moment, next slide, when this body adopted a joint resolution with Douglas County for the unconditional return of Njuje Wahobe. Next slide. Thank you for your time. And now I want to introduce uh, James Pepper Henry, the vice chair of the Khan Nation Tribal Council and a member of our leadership team.
2: Oh, kuya,
18: yeah, can everyone hear me okay? Yes. Well, uh, first of all, thank you for letting me have the opportunity to say a few words this evening. Um, Again, the Kahn Nation is very grateful to the City Commission and the citizens of Lawrence, Kansas, for um, agreeing to return our sacred ancestor to the Kahn Nation. And uh, this has been a long time coming. I first visited uh, Lawrence, Kansas over 30 years ago with my great uncle, Luther Pepper, who was vice chairman of the Nation at that time, and I am now vice chairman of the Nation at the present time. And I first, I had heard about Juge Wahobe my whole life, but I had never visited until I was in, uh, a young man in my 20s and um, was very uh, impressed and overwhelmed with seeing uh, Njuje Wahobe for the first time. And I, I asked my uncle, uh, at that time uh, you know the the history of the of the rock and, and why it en- ended up in robinson park and why it, it didn't belong or wasn't back with the kaw people and uh uh and he said you know the, the 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 climate wasn't right at that time to try to have the rock return to us but a lot of things have happened in the last 30 years and um and so I, I think attitudes have changed about this. People want to know about the history of their area. Um, I think people, and the citizens of Lawrence want to know who the original inhabitants of, of your city were and it uh, wasn't just the people that have had a presence in Kansas, but many other tribes as well. And so the, the climate is, is much better today. Uh, for the return of Njujia Wahobe to um, the citizens of the Kau Nation, and we're the rightful stewards of that stone. And uh, I'm very thankful to uh, the people that are, involved, that are involved in this project from the city side. Uh, Tony Wheeler has been incredible. Um, uh, of course, the University of Kansas. Um, has been incredible in this process Um, as you uh, may know that uh, we received a Mellon grant Mellon Foundation grant for five million dollars to help with the return of Njujia Wahobe to the Ka people the University of Kansas will be the administrator and facilitators of that grant Um, the Ka nation is in uh, total agreement with that. The University of Kansas has experience working with the Mellon Foundation and facilitating grants there, and we felt that they would be the best ones to uh, administer the deliverables of that grant. So we're very thankful uh, to Jay and his team and the folks at University of Kansas to help facilitate uh, the grant. Uh, we are all going to meet at the end of the month uh, to discuss uh, plans for Injuje-Wahobe. We, we, This is just the beginning stages. We don't have many answers right now uh, about the process, but uh, we have a workshop with all parties uh, that are interested uh, in the return of Njuje Wahobe. And so uh, we'll come up with a plan, a strategy that eventually we'll share with the city commission and the the citizens of Kansas of uh, when and how and who and all of this is going to happen. So uh, we're just in the beginning phases we have about two and a half years to uh, facilitate uh, uh, the return of Njujie Wahobe and the other deliverables um, that are in the grant. And I I do want to say that um, right now our plans, uh, our tentative plans are to uh, have Njujie Wahobe go uh, move to our tribal lands outside of Council Grove, Kansas, where we can care for the stone uh, on our own property. And that's, there, there are several things that have to happen to make sure that we can do that. Um, but we're also very interested in working with the citizens of Lawrence and the city commission about uh, what will happen next with Robinson Park and the interpretation of Robinson Park. And the last thing the Kaw nation and the Kaw people want to do is to erase ourselves even further from the conversation in Lawrence, Kansas. And so we would like to have a presence in somewhere or another or be recognized along with the other Indigenous communities that uh, have had occupation in that area for time immemorial and be recognized at Robinson Park. So um, again, on behalf of the Kaw Nation, I want to thank the city commission, again, the citizens of Lawrence for your support in this overwhelming support and for the folks involved with um, this project. And uh, we look forward to giving an update in the months ahead. Thank you.
15: We're available to take whatever questions you might have.
0: (laughs) Great, thank you so much. I wanna thank you of course, for being here and, Jim Pepper Henry, again, I thank you so much for your graciousness and for being here. Um, I do kind of have a question for Tony. Um, And I know you guys don't want to talk about the logistics specifically, but I understand you have been in conversation um, logistically about what will be needed from our side um, on a practical level. So I just want to make sure that we offer all of our support and making sure you have everything you need.
14: Yes, Mayor, we have had some preliminary discussions, and of course, there will be um, requirements when the move actually occurs, and um, we will work with Parks and Rec staff and MSO staff to make sure that that goes smoothly. Um, There is a chance that some shrubberies um, will be damaged and and maybe some uh, sidewalks and irrigation systems, so we're trying to take all of that into account and plan for it. Um, There will have to be some... The traffic will have to be controlled when the semi trucks and the cranes are moved into the park to um, to actually load it onto a truck for transport to Council Grove. So, um, you know, we're working very closely. The MSO staff and Parks and Rec staff have been very helpful, and um, you know, they want to accommodate and um, make sure that it it runs smoothly. So, um, you know, we will update you as we have more firm plans and. You know timelines etc thank you tony any other questions from commissioners at this time
0: um i will i hate i hate to pressure you sir mr pepper henry um but there's so many things i know people have questions about and you did mention the plans for the park which i i want to make sure again that you have everything from us if if there is space for public engagement or um, uh, what what do you need from us to make sure those conversations go forward? Because I'm also interested in um, what should be done with that space or um, uh, if perhaps, well, maybe not perhaps, it should be renamed, for example. Uh, but again, I don't want to pressure you in this moment.
18: Well, I, I think there there are a lot of things to consider. And obviously um, this needs to be a conversation with, with the community there in, in Lawrence. And uh, just from our perspective, from the Caw Nation, um, you know, we're we're virtually invisible to the people of Kansas right now. I would say if I were to Survey nine out of 10 people on the street, or survey 10 people in the streets of Lawrence and ask them um, where the name uh, of their state comes from. Nine out of 10 people could not tell you that the state of Kansas is named after the Ka people or the Kanza people. And so um, it's important for us to um, uh, have a presence a continued presence in the state of Kansas and the city of Lawrence. And so from our perspective, the Connations perspective, whatever conversations are had about uh, Robinson Park and the future of it, we'd like to be part of that conversation and, uh, and hopefully um, uh, increase our profile there in the state that bears our name. But I think Jay might be able to answer that a little bit better because the, within the grant, um, there is an opportunity to, to start having these discussions and Jay, do you, would you like to elaborate on that?
15: Sure. Yes, we did include funding for these conversations for community engagement and for the creation of a plan that we could then one of our final deliverables to the city, a plan for the future of the park that, of course, further engagement would need to follow. Uh, along that, but uh, I will state that the Mellon Foundation was very intent um, that that be a part of our proposal, and very interested in hearing more about the process.
0: Um, okay. Any further questions after that? Just uh,
4: go ahead. Just to piggyback on that. So, within the grant, is it that Ku is leading a discussion, or is it, are you working in collaboration with the city to working in collaboration with the city? yes
5: I just want to thank everybody for the work they've done it's been um, pretty exciting to watch the process Tony you put a lot of heart into this and I appreciate that very much um, and and glad to see it continuing great great to get that grant that was nice thank you uh,
18: one one final comment uh, Jay and Dave have been incredible we wouldn't have received this Mellon grant without their efforts. And uh, so again, the connation is very grateful to them as well. And uh, for all those who've supported this to this point, thank you.
0: Thank you again. Let's um, go ahead and go to public comment. Is there anyone in the room who would like to make comments on this item? Uh, let's make sure there's Um, no one online who's interested in speaking to this item. There's no public comment there. Okay. Thank you. Let's bring it back for discussion. I'm sure there's not much, but, um, some of us might have some other questions or comments. Any other questions or comments?
2: No, I would just agree with everyone else. Thank you everyone for the work on this Dave and Pauline. Um, you know, we we'll started this a long time ago, and certainly appreciate them and and the, as you mentioned, Mayor, the the carnation for their graciousness, and of course, anything we can do. Look forward to doing it.
19: Uh, yeah, I just want to echo that. I just just happy to see the genesis of this and just kind of process mm-hmm. continuing, and all the players involved, and uh, uh, it's is really really cool, and I'm qu- really glad that uh, this is happening. So, um, I remember. Seeing Pauline and Dave in the uh, Parks and Rec meeting when uh, I guess many years ago, <laughs> and uh, to see us get to this point is is outstanding. So, uh,
0: I I might ask Jay if you don't mind to uh, engage me a little bit. Um, uh, having read um, not just the con nations website about their history but also between the rock and a hard place um, really great resource I hope people go out there and see some of the things they've added a lot of new things um, Pauline and Dave have to that website um, uh, about Robinson uh, the person, the historical character um, that, you know, of course, in addition to this sort of dedication of this park um, to him and the pioneers, um, but also KU's land was procured through kind of a land swap with um, Charles Robinson. And I think before he died, he amassed well over, I forgot, more than 100 acres of land, um, not just through Whatever endeavors he had personally But through his legislation and working um, Very complicated um, What I would go with swindling uh, Creating uh, uh, Legislation around um, Squatting and what, what they were Calling floats and things like that I, I don't expect you to know a lot of that history But I wonder if you could comment Because I know KU also has Some departments have land acknowledgements and, and I would say I appreciate some comments That um, Mr. Pepper Henry made more about um, uh, people acknowledgements versus land acknowledgements. I, I do want to say that. Um, but I wonder, you know, there is a building named after Robinson on KU campus. And I wonder, will any of these things also be kind of part of this dialogue?
15: Uh, I will say we, it's nothing that we've planned under the Mellon Foundation grant. <laughs> um, but I'm sure that once we have more public dialogue about Charles Robinson and his history, I would imagine there will be more conversations on KU's campus as well. I I know that a number of buildings on campus, there've been conversations about the names and the individuals um, who are being memorialized. (laughs)
0: Um, and then I just do also want to make sure, you know, it's hard sometimes to identify who all the um, stakeholders is a term we kind of use here generally, you know, FNSA and and all these other groups that some of them are grassroots and maybe we don't know who all of them are. Um, do you you have a pretty good feeling about your ability to get a hold of all these people who uh, will have um, a a vested interest in this dialogue. Sure. Some have come forward. And
15: uh, in fact, later this week, I'm speaking to the Indigenous Justice Group at the Peace Mennonite Church. Uh, individuals from the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship mm-hmm. are very interested. We've yeah. been put in contact with Plymouth Congregational. Um, so some of that dialogue is starting already. And uh, I know from having worked with Dave and Pauline since back in 2019 on the project that that we have a we have a a wealth of uh, identified individuals and i'm sure as these community engagements continue uh, more of those will come forward. Okay,
0: I know
15: that we also are very intent on trying to respect the the people who are the descendants of those named on the plaque. And we are conscious uh, that there is an attachment to the plaque itself. And we did actually include funding for a replica to be created if the plaque cannot be removed from the stone. Um,
0: uh, Thank you for those comments. Um, I guess make sure that didn't kick up any discussion among commissioners. Um again, I, I can't I can't thank you all enough for the work you've done. Um, this is an amazing moment Thank you. Um, please uh, know that we're a resource. Tell us what you need. Obviously, Tony has been a fantastic connection for you, but we are also here. Great.
15: Thank you very much.
0: Um, OK. Um, our next item is to consider approving the second quarter budget adjustment, and amending the capital improvement plan maintenance plan and vehicle and equipment replacement plan.
20: Good evening, Jeremy Wilmuth, finance director for the city of Lawrence. Um, <clears throat> I don't have much to present other than uh, what's been presented in the staff report but I just wanted to provide a few uh, clarifying comments. Um, As you all know, we've had a little bit of staff turnover here. And so, um, unfortunately, there's a little bit of a miscommunication uh, as we started this project. Um, Some of the items that uh, were in the original memo um, were shown as being uh, taken from fund balance uh, when we actually have uh, internal places uh, to take that money. So, uh, to clarify, and to uh, really focus the second quarter budget amendment on just those things that we're asking for your approval for, they've been removed. Um, so that's why you, uh, they were in there, if you read that uh, original memo, um, and then they were removed today when we had our update. Um, the, the items that are left, we essentially have uh, three uh, po- pockets of money, if you will. We have uh, new revenue, uh, predominantly grants, that we need uh, to have added to the budget so that, that work can continue. We have some items uh, that were missed in the first quarter budget adjustment. So they're really rolling over unspent dollars from 2021 into 2022. Uh, we did a lot of that work in the first quarter, but we missed a few. So uh, that's the second pocket and then the third pocket uh, would be the, the items uh, where we were considering um, appropriating fund balance or taking money from the savings account, if you will, and putting it forward for uh, projects in 2022. Um, so when you look at our our memo, uh, there's really only two areas uh, where we where we're asking for that. Um, but we thought that this would be a good uh, opportunity to have a policy discussion about when these type of items come forward uh, in the future what process uh, you all would like to take with that. So um, the the two items before you that are asking for um, the appropriation from fund balance uh, have not been brought to the city commission before. So these will be, well, I take that back. Um, the first item, the 70,000 was brought as a, a city manager's report. Um, but there I don't believe there was any uh, solid direction given uh, one way or another about the use of that so um, in our proposal tonight we have uh recommended that the seventy thousand be funded from the uh on un- the available fund balance in the general fund um the other item is in the airport fund and it's one where we thought we we're going to have grant funding but we didn't uh we still need to get the project completed there's sufficient fund balance in the airport fund so we're re- making that recommendation as well um, if you'd like to go through these item by item, we can, uh, or if you just want to, uh, I can make myself available to answer questions. However, you all would see fit.
0: Thanks, Jeremy. Um, any any questions, particularly,
5: commissioners? Yeah, I have a question. So the only item that you're requesting to come from the reserve general fund is the seventy thousand for the Peasley. Is that correct?
20: Jeremy Wilmot, finance director, that is correct.
0: Okay, thank you. Any other questions? Okay, Uh, let's make sure there's no public comment on this item. Is there anyone in the public or here in the audience that wants to comment on this? Not seeing anyone. Sherry, is there anyone online? looks like there's no
8: public comment
0: there. Okay, let's bring it back to the Commissioner for discussion. Actually, Mayor, I'm sorry, I do have a question um, for Jeremy.
5: Jeremy, could you talk about where we stand right now with our structural deficit situation and how that's impacting us going forward uh, for the budget from 2022, as well as next year? Could you talk about that a little bit?
20: Jeremy Wilmot, finance director, I'd be happy to. I think part of the challenge is uh, we right now have a current fund balance um, sitting around $24.9 million. Um, That's unaudited. Once the audit's finished, we'll know what the exact fund balance is. Um, But in terms of our current fund balance policy, it equates to about 85 days of operating expenses. So uh, our current fund balance is within our policy of 60 days and is just five days shy of our target of 90 days um however the budget that was adopted for 2022 did have a significant um imbalance between uh, anticipated revenues and anticipated expenditures that uh um, So this time we don't have a a real gap. We are planning on a budget gap, um, but that budget gap is intended to be filled with uh, federal dollars. Uh, The 2023 budget would then also have a gap that we would intend uh, to look at operational uh, changes as well as the remaining uh, federal dollars to cover as well. Does that so, answer
5: your question? Yeah, that, that helps. I appreciate that. So um, long-term though, um, we right now we have federal dollars that we potentially can rely upon, but long-term, are we going to be able to meet our budget obligations without the need to rely heavily on outside sources that may or may not be there?
20: Jeremy Wilmoth, finance director. The, the short answer is we're going to have to. So if we don't have... Uh, the revenues, and we're going to have to cut expenditures to to meet our actual revenues. Okay. the um, The plan that was uh, brought forth last year was to uh, use those revenue loss dollars from the America Recovery Plan uh, grant from the federal government to bridge that gap in 23 and in 24 with the understanding that there would be some changes to operations in both 23 and 24, so that by the time we got to 25, we were back into a uh, structurally sound um, fiscal position where expenditures are under revenues.
0: Okay, thank you. Any other questions?
4: Jeremy, you know, I mean, this is Commissioner Seller, so to make sure I understood you correctly, what you were saying prior to laying out where the funds were coming from for these two projects. From a policy perspective, we don't per se have a process as to if someone comes, if an agency, organization, whatnot, department comes to request additional funding or dollars that are out of cycle we don't have a a policy in place on how to address that in relationship to where as it pertains to those funding reserves or help me understand am i getting it close to what you're saying or what you're trying what you were hoping to articulate
20: yes jeremy willmoth finance director Uh, the city does actually have a policy uh, that establishes a process for organizations to fill out a uh, what we call an outside agency request um, that we would then compare mid-year where where that policy is um, lacking in my opinion is it doesn't really speak to whether um, we want to address this at the time of the budget amendment which is what we're doing right now or if you would prefer to have those actions before you as a separate item so that the uh, budget action before you tonight is more of a summary or a recap of uh, activity that you have already discussed um, in the course
2: of your business. Does, does that make sense?
4: This is Commissioner Sellers, yes. Thank you,
2: Jeremy. And maybe that's a, a good place for me to jump in. I guess, you know, my thought process on these and, and going to that big picture question, you know, we, we adopt a budget, you know, in May, I mean, well, in July or August, you know, six months before the year even starts. And then we go through a year. Um, So obviously the 2022 budget was adopted last July. Um, It's a big budget. There's a lot of dollars in there. Um, But I certainly understood, you know, as we started these last year, we did budget amendments. For example, we did a budget amendment that, we amended the 2021 budget to add four or five positions to the 2021 position to support the strategic plan. Um, we did that because we realized it was something we needed to do, um, and it was something we didn't anticipate nearly a year earlier. Um, so, to me, these budget amendments are an important part of being flexible, and especially as we move towards a strategic plan, you know, having the ability to make adjustments, you know, mid-year. Multiple times to accomplish our strategic plan, and realize that we're not going to be able to appropriately guess, you know, every aspect of a budget, you know, six months before it even starts. Let alone by the time we get to the end of the budget, um, that we need these sorts of adjustments um, to to come before us, and that we don't need to debate every single line item on every single agenda. Um, Time after time, but instead bring them to us on these quarterly basis. So, to me, I think it's a it's a perfect um, and appropriate process, um, you know, to consider these amendments. And sometimes they'll go up, and sometimes they'll go down, um, you know. And but overall, we continue to make those adjustments as we go forward. So, to me, I, I mean, I like this process. I, I like this process that. We we get to see these quarterly. We make adjustments and and we do that. Now that we have the strategic plan in place, we know what we're funding. We if if we say these are accomplishing those goals, we move things around. This is the process we should be using. And so, I'm I'm pretty excited. Um, I was actually kind of disappointed last time where we didn't really. Um, of course, it's the first quarter. The first quarter we didn't have as many adjustments. I mean, I would expect the third and fourth quarter maybe to have more adjustments than the first two because now we're further into the year and, and we know what's coming up as we start to look at the 2023 budget. We say, hey, well, maybe there's something we want to fund in 2023. Maybe we should start that in November instead of waiting until January. Maybe we should make an adjustment to 2022 to get that project that's so important to us. Let's get that going. So, I mean, to me, it's it's the only way to to make good um budget decision so appreciate the process and and, and I support doing it on a quarterly basis.
5: I think one of the differences I see in in this and I agree I actually these budget amendments are are necessary um, for, uh, for what I believe obvious reasons what the difference I see here and when we've added positions in the past is this is an outside agency that's coming to ask for for an amendment to our budget um and so i struggle with the out of cycle funding for outside agencies like this because it really that that i think should open up to any agency who wants to come and add a cycle budget to come and request money in fact the the memo from april 5th indicated that there may be other um out of cycle funding requests from outside organizations and i struggle with with that as to where do you draw the line as to um, who do you fund and who you don't fund? This particular situation with Peasley Tech, I'm a huge supporter of Peasley Tech, and I'm st- struggling with the um, idea that I'm just not okay with spending down our reserve funds given our structural situation right now. Um, what I would be interested in doing is to find a way to fund Peasley Tech by cutting um, some of these, the other funding that's within this request, such as the, um, the from the general fund the finance as well as the parks and recs if we can take some money from those two which are left over from last year and use some of those funds to to fund the Peasley Tech one. I just really don't want to access that reserve fund given our current financial situation and our unknown situation going into just going into our budget season
2: Well I, I would respond in, on two things. One I would say big picture, putting aside Peasley Tech, the specifics of this, and I'll come back to that, is, you know, as we move into the strategic plan, we partner with people to implement our strategic plan, and those include outside agencies. So if something comes along that's an outside agency that furthers our strategic plan, to me, it's no different than funding someone internally. I mean, if we decide, it's, I mean, to me, again this is a different question than your general fund question you know but i'm trying to make sure we get big picture um i don't think question one should we use budgetly quarterly amendments to fund outside agencies my my answer to that is we should use quarterly budget adjustments to fund our strategic plan However, we need to fund that strategic plan. Sometimes that's an outside agency. Sometimes that's a subcontractor. Sometimes that's our own employee. So to me, the the question is, um, yes, we do that. Second question, do we ever have a quarterly fund amendment that spins down fund balances? Well, again, I think the answer is yes. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. Um, You know, one quarter, it might go up. Next quarter, it might go down. Where we're going to end up this year on our quarterly balance, I mean, Jeremy, correct me if I'm wrong, but revenues coming in much stronger than we predicted when we made the 2022 budget. So our end of the year, um, again, we, the year's not over yet. But if if the year ended now, our our balance is going to be much greater than we predicted um, at the time. Again, we will, you know, something might happen that we make a third quarter adjustment because the economy tanks and we decide we're going to cut back on things. So, you know, again, I think, again, big picture policy question. Could we have, but um, you know, quarterly budget adjustments that affect the, um, you know, the general fund? I mean, to me, the answer is yes, knowing that we have to look at the overall picture, you know, by the time we get to the end of the year. And so um, I guess to me, um now, if you asked me about Peasley Tech in this particular situation, um, you know we have historically funded Peasley Tech at two hundred thousand dollars a year. We have historically done that. When this came up during the during the budget season, um, one of the responses was, "Well, this money is being used to supplement other funding um, to support equitable scholarships for people in need," and we at the time said. You know, it wasn't recommended to be funded because we thought there might be other funds available. But if those funds weren't available and they ran out of money, they should come to us um, with an amendment to get us to the historical $200,000 level, and we would fund that. So th- that, that's how we got, you know, to this place. We have historically funded them $200,000. This year we funded them one hundred and thirty. You know, I support Peasley Tech. I support this cause. I think taking them to their historic level is something now that they're out of money, that's why they've came to us to ask. So I don't see it as a, um, as a, quote, decrease in fund balance as the reason I think it's supporting our strategic plan and supporting our historical support of Beasley Tech, which is why I support this in particular, as well as the entire amendment.
5: Yeah, I don't disagree that it definitely supports our strategic plan, but I just want to I would just want to find a way to offset that. And I think we can do that with with some of the requests in here um, so that we don't have to spend our fund balance and, and we can um, keep it um, keep it even. And so that's what I'm interested in is is reducing some of the money that's being requested for either the finance or the parks and recs or both. And so that way we can fund the piece Tech because I agree. I think it does. Um meet those standards but at some point um you know we've we've got to be real careful with our fund balance i think we can look no further than the school district right now where they've slowly spit down their fund balance over the years and they are in a very tight situation um with their um with their budget and i you know and in it you know when they were doing that it was under the very honest um belief that their enrollment would go up that the money was looking good um, but we don't know what's going to happen this year um, with our uh, next year. So I think we ought to protect that fund balance all we can. And we need to start considering things that we can cut that, that, um, and this is extra money from last year um, that wasn't spent. So let's use some of that to fund this Peasley tech.
4: So commissioner Larson, if I, I hear you correctly, I, and, and I echo the sentiments of commissioner Finkel I, Using the strategic plan to guide this, we we have the policy in place. It becomes our our responsibility as commissioners to say, okay, this is this is the process. We have the choice. Peasley Tech isn't or is an entity that has been funded in the past by the city. Um, it's been laid out why there was a short there was a shortfall in their funding this year. So we have that ability that authority based on the process in place to say, does this align? One, do we wanna pull money from the reserves? Two, if we choose to, are we doing it on the basis of the strategic plan? That's the vote. So it doesn't make, I don't think we have to, Codify that—that that is the policy. That's the vote. So I think it's not just willy-nilly. Um, it's not just a continuous drawdown. If someone comes to the well, we make the decision whether or not the request rises to the occasion to even spend down those dollars. So I—I I think I think we we have to think of it in that in that capacity. To your question about pulling funds from somewhere else. I think that's just a matter of the very essence of the request to the staff if that's the direction we want to go with this again I don't think it needs to be I don't. And, and Jeremy I don't, I don't want to misspeak I don't know if that's if that's what you were saying with the request prior to if we need to do that I think that's just the request if, if it comes to us, then we give that charge to staff. To say, in this case, we don't want to look at spending down our reserves, look at how we can make this fit by cutting. I mean, that's what the request is. And that's if that's the direction we want staff to go, then that's the request that we as commissioners make. It doesn't necessarily have to be the process. That's the request. So I I, I think we can I I think we can solve this if saying if we. If the request comes from the whether we fund this from the reserves and we vote on that, or we you build a consensus to say, I would feel more comfortable funding this if we could look at. Amending department dollars and and, and, and pulling it from dollars that have already been designated in budget, I think that's the that's the question at hand that's going to move the discussion.
5: Well, that was my request. Essentially, is to look at pulling monies from a couple of these other areas that had extra funds from last year. That's all I'm asking. And that's that's my request, and I could support this if we do that. And
2: which ones are you asking?
5: I was looking at the as I said, items one and two under general fund, where there is um, parks and rec was carrying over forty six, and finance was carrying over one hundred seventy four if we could split it between those and then that way we leave our reserve fund. And you're okay with reserve. Okay, yeah.
2: So the UN moves the money we've set aside with the enterprise resource fund project, take it from that and or the tree fund? Yeah,
5: those because those are two general funds. I'm looking at the same funds.
11: Mm-hmm. Sorry, Mayor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeremy's like to oh, intervene if.
0: Oh, sorry, Jeremy. Recognize him. There, I see you. Sorry, you're very small here. I apologize.
20: <laughs> Jeremy, well, a finance director. I'm very small in real life, so no, <laughs> no offense. <to> that. <laughs> um, if it. I could <laughs> just clarify a few things, the Master Street Tree Project is in the general fund. That is a true statement. However, those dollars are actually funded by developers. Uh, as developers come and uh, make their um, their plans, then funds are set aside for the Master Street program. Um, So I don't wanna get into a situation where we're essentially taking dollars we told developers we would put into the street program and then um, appropriating it for another use. So I I just wanna make sure that's clear that um, this 46,000 is money that we actually received from developers for the Master Street Tree program. Due to weather and other issues, it just wasn't spent in 21 so we want to make sure that we get that uh, allocated to the, the street program for this year um, in terms of the enterprise resource planning project that is obviously that's at your discretion um i i think we'd be very challenged to try to bring this project in um, with a reduction to the to the budget thanks
5: so, for that clarification uh, jeremy i appreciate it and no jeremy problem.
2: if since you have the floor now if is our fund balance? Are we are we better off? Do we have more money in our fund balance than we predicted at this point when we passed the 2022 budget? Chairman, well, the
20: finance director. That question again is kind of challenging. Um, if if all things were equal, we would use less federal funds to bridge the gap than we originally intended.
2: So, um, because revenues coming in stronger.
20: Revenues are, are, especially in sales taxes, are significantly uh, significant, might be too strong a term. Um, revenues are higher than we had anticipated, which is always a good thing from a from a budget policy perspective. Um, our expenditures seem to be trending where we thought they would generally. We're really just, you know, three uh, months into the fiscal years. I uh, haven't really dealt with any of the Significant street projects that we're going to deal with this year, or or things of that nature, um, but generally the general fund is in better fiscal shape right now than we had in that we thought it would be um, last May, June, and July when we were discussing this budget. Um, if I could just offer, um, if it is the the city commission's desire that we find this seventy thousand, if you would allow uh, staff to to you know sort of regroup. Um, if you were to approve this and simply direct us to not use fund balance, then uh, we can find areas within the general fund um, to, to make those requests, uh, to fund those requests from uh, appropriations we currently have, uh, if that's the, the city commission's direction. When we were looking at this request, we were really just looking at the economic development department's allocation in the general fund, not the entire general fund, uh, and that's why we felt that we did not have adequate resources within the allotment currently uh, set aside for economic development to cover the 70000 which is why staff requested uh, that come from fund balance.
5: Thank you, Jeremy. That would be my preference.
0: Um, okay. Well... I guess while we cogitate on that, Craig, can I ask you a question? So how does that work in your mind? Because also I'm thinking about not just this moment, which we're just trying to get through, but like I'm looking at our strategic plan, which thankfully someone brought it over here. Um, You know, we are thinking about putting things in pots of money and and how to rethink that. Does this complicate that, is it? More of the same, less of the same, or just moving through this moment—that suggestion. Uh,
11: it, it, I'm really excited that Jeremy said what I was going to intervene and say. Um, <laughs> once in a while, that happens. Um, it, it would. Say, I think we should simplify this conversation. Allow us time to get back to this. the The um, the quarterly budget amendment is not the same as our budgeting. It looks like it. It feels like it right now, it's not because we don't sweep out all the accounts like we would do in building a whole year's budget. We don't go through and look at every line item and remake the plans on a quarterly basis. Someday we may get there, but that is a huge undertaking. So we use this to just recognize known events and not necessarily go back and reprogram the entire planning of every budget and every program that we do. Okay, so when you all are looking at, oh, well, let's look at this and change this one so that we don't do this. We can go back and look at are there some things that we realistically think are going to come in less expensive and that relate to economic development? Or are there some things that now aren't as good a prior or a bigger priority as they were? Or can we look at what what do we really think? There's been some conditions where seventy thousand dollars is about the amount difference that we realistically expect we'll close the year at. But to to go through kind of your line of thinking that you're trying to get to with just the information we give you in quarterly budget, you're just not getting a whole bunch of information that will be very difficult for us to gather. So we can do a one-off and say, I can find a way to get you the $70,000 without going into reserves. But... We're not trying to reprogram or predict how we're going to finish the year across all budget in the general fund. That complicate
2: things more in your thinking. Well, I, you know, I guess you know if we said if we said to you, I mean, I hear what Commissioner Lawson is saying is we should if we're going to fund seventy thousand here, we should you know take it from there. I guess what I'm all what I'm saying is if we direct staff to finish the year with more in reserves than we budgeted for in 2022. Can you do that? You know, and does the 70, I mean, $70,000 is out of 24.9 million. um, And at the moment we're ahead of schedule. Um, It doesn't mean that we have to find the 70,000 tomorrow. But that by the time we get to the end of the year, after we look at all our general fund, will we be better off than we were? That's how I see these quarterly amendments, that we're not changing, you know, necessarily the bottom line at the end of the year, but we're making adjustments midstream and that we'll be better off, That you know, that, that we're making those adjustments here and there. Um, but it's the big picture that we're worried about, not tit for tat, I guess.
11: I agree with that. I agree with that. So if you tell us, find the 70,000, we can work to find that and we'll tell you kind of how that, how we got to that conclusion. Um, But keep in mind with three quarters left, you know, are we going to have a lot of flooding events over the summer that's going to draw down a lot of overtime? That's $70,000. We're going to have, you know, any other overtime situations over the rest of the year. Um, Those are things, so there's a lot of play that's in this budget that we don't control. That $70,000 is not a very big amount. But what we're trying to do and what we've asked the departments to do is when they're bringing these quarterly budgets, account for everything on a quarterly basis that you're pretty sure you know this is either you're going to spend less than you thought for and you know that now or you're going to for sure you have an unexpected expenditure and let's recognize those without trying to reprogram all the budget okay so we can get you what you want i just don't want you to think it's something different than it really is we're not redoing the budget every quarter
17: right.
11: we're right. only we're only recognizing the known changes right. both positive and negative and even not all of them because small ones we don't even mess with right <laughs> it, i see little jeremy's head nodding so i <laughs> take that as another positive
0: um well then let me also ask in that vein then i'm also again trying to be a champion for our strategic plan um if if we were to say go comb the sands for 70,000 pennies. What does that staff time look like when I know that staff is working incredibly hard on the budget we need right now for next year, the next year's?
11: Is that an onerous task? Said 70,000, it's not. Um, and I don't think we would have pushed forward the 70,000 with a recommendation if we thought that, if we didn't think that the proposal actually really aligns with what we're trying to get done and high priorities within the strategic plan. Um, if this would have been something that was completely left field and didn't align with any of those things, then I we wouldn't have brought it with a recommendation.
5: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I again go back to P, I think this does fall within our strategic plan, but also so does sound fiscal stewardship and that that goes hand in hand with all of this and and um, you know what I'm just trying to make a statement is that I want to be very protective of our reserves and make sure that um, you know, obviously it looks good now money wise, but uh, my preference is to not touch that if we can avoid it.
21: Mm-hmm.
4: And I think we're seeing sound fiscal stewardship. And to echo what Craig said, if he didn't think it aligned, then he wouldn't have brought it to us. We wouldn't have had the report that we had from Jeremy. So I feel confident in that. I did my due diligence to review and read and I'm ready to vote on that. But I I don't believe it it wouldn't have gotten to this point if we weren't practicing our strategic plan and executing. Sound of fiscal stewardship.
0: Do I hear a motion?
4: I move to we approve the second quarter budget adjustment as presented and amend the capital improvement plan, maintenance plan, and vehicle and equipment replacement plan as presented. Second.
0: I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Nay. One opposed? Bart? <sighs> sorry. Commissioner, can I give you a second to think?
19: Yeah. I mean... I I approve it like like Brad said, but if Jeremy can comb the sands and try to find 70,000 pennies, as you said, I don't see why we wouldn't give him a chance. So um, I guess I would vote nay.
0: All right. That passes three to two um the people at home may not know that we've been doing this since five o'clock so i want to give us a comfort break um can I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. you don't uh, yeah but how how long i never i have a hard time predicting how long people need 10 minutes so let's say seven thirty, just to make it nice and round <laughs> Next we have a work session item. Work session provides an opportunity for the City Commission to discuss items in greater detail. The Commission will... take
21: Hello, good evening. My name is Tom Fagan. I'm the Interim Fire Chief at Lawrence Douglas County Fire Medical, and I'm joined by our new fire chief, Rich Lockhart, or police chief, Rich Lockhart. He's welcome to come over. If, um, but uh, we've also got some great things we're going to share with you tonight, some video and storytelling. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen to begin the presentation. Oh,
7: thank you.
21: All right, well, we're going to begin by um, first, I want to recognize uh, recently retired fire chief, Sean Coffey as the previous safe and secure champion for uh, the great work that he's done over the past year in this new strategic plan. And over the past several months for me, it's really been a journey learning about a lot of the things that the city is, is really investing in uh, to work in this space. And you'll see some of those things tonight. Supporter is going to share a video through Zoom to kind of get us going here with an intro.
17: Bear with me one second.
13: Oops. Hang on, hang on. (laughs) Too many
22: buttons to push. Okay. Hi, I'm Rich Lockhart, Chief of the Lawrence, Kansas. You're on longer.
17: Share the other screen.
13: Okay, we rehearsed this, and I am just messing it up. I apologize.
17: It's going well. <laughs> Thanks.
13: There you go.
22: Thank you. Hi, I'm Rich Lockhart, Chief of the Lawrence, Kansas Police Department.
21: And I'm Tom Fagan, Interim Chief of Lawrence Douglas County Fire Medical and champion for our city's Safe and Secure Outcome Team.
22: We all work together on a daily basis to assure people in Lawrence feel safe and secure and have access to trusted safety resources.
21: Our Safe and Secure Team isn't just the Lawrence, Kansas Police Department and Lawrence Douglas County Fire Medical. We also work alongside the city attorney's office municipal court, municipal services and operations, planning and development services, parks and rec, and more.
22: At the core of our work for Safe and Secure, we want to make sure our residents feel safe here and that they trust our emergency services. We have two progress indicators in our strategic plan that measure our success in these areas. According to our most recent survey data, 82% of our residents perceive Lawrence as safe or very safe, and 81% of our residents are satisfied or very satisfied with their trust in our emergency services. And while we are enthusiastic about our progress and work in these areas to date, we do still want to improve these numbers, which is why we've developed strategies that we believe will improve our community's perception of safety and trust in emergency services. One of these strategies is using community empowerment and education to eliminate, reduce, and respond to events, trends, and activities that pose the greatest threat to safety and security.
21: Something Lawrence Douglas County Fire Medical is working on towards this strategy is increasing community awareness of the PulsePoint Respond mobile application. The PulsePoint Respond app empowers anyone in our community to provide life-saving assistance to victims of sudden cardiac arrest by notifying subscribers that someone requiring CPR is nearby. If they are able, they can respond to the app and give CPR to the person in need while advanced medical care is on the way. Empowering our community to help in this way and educating people on how to give CPR are important activities to improve sudden cardiac arrest
22: survivability. The Lawrence, Kansas Police Department is also focused on community empowerment and education for our residents young and old. This spring break and again this summer, we'll be hosting our police camp program for children ages eight to 11. This year, we actually even added an additional camp because of community demand after COVID. The program is a fantastic educational resource teaching kids about what our department members do and how we respond to some of the activities that pose a threat to our community safety. It also allows young children to have a positive interaction with officers while they're still young, and it's a lot of fun. These two
21: examples are just that, two examples out of dozens of activities that we're undertaking to improve the feeling of safety and the trust our community has in our emergency services. We look forward to continuing to serve our community and build your trust to help make the City of Lawrence safe and secure.
17: All right, thanks for sharing the presentation.
21: All right, well, as you can see uh, through the video, there are just so many partners that we're working with to really work towards these performance indicators. Mm-hmm. Uh, we mentioned uh, a couple of we didn't mention on there were some of our county partners as well, specifically emergency emergency management. Um, and I can't help but uh, share their assistance, particularly over the past several weeks uh, through the final four uh, for emergency plan- management planning uh, within the city has really been helpful. And so they are definitely a partner uh, with us as we help keep our community safe. But as you can see, even though we're presenting tonight, uh, myself and and Chief Lockhart, uh, there are many others that are a part of this process to help us along the way. So in front of you in the presentation, there are numerous performance indicators that have been tied to the safe and secure outcome, uh, spanning over several commitment areas. The ones that are highlighted uh, in the presentation are the ones that we're going to be really having focused conversations about tonight. There are so many that are on here that we do not have enough time in the evening to really get into all of these in further detail tonight. But they will be coming in front of you in the future in future safe and secure presentations. At this time, I'm going to switch it over to Chief Lockhart and he's going to get us kicked off with our first performance indicator. Chief? Thank you.
22: Madam Mayor, members of the Commission, Uh, good to be here with you tonight to talk about safe and secure in the context of your Lawrence Police Department. Uh, The strategy here is providing community education and engagement on support services before, during, and after traumatic events, evaluating public safety processes for opportunities to enhance environmental management practices. Uh, Right now, we're below target in this area, and I think you'll see that that's something that uh, is a... Continuing theme. Uh, This is our first progress report. Uh, Tom and I just came on board full time, uh, the first of the year uh, as the co-champions for this uh, area. So we're going to work on creating some improvements in those areas. So our next reports, hopefully, you'll see some of that. For us, one of our strategies uh, relates to a CALIA process. So, we're going to be working toward an accreditation. That's probably something we're going to look at in August of this year. We just hired an accreditation manager, and the next CALIA conference uh, that's the Commission on Accreditation for Law Enforcement Agencies is in July. And so we wanna get her to a, a, an accreditation conference to meet some of those accreditation managers. Uh, the reason we're gonna wait until August is because you have a three-year timeframe to com- uh, to complete the accreditation process. So without having someone fully trained on how that works, the ins and outs, we would be wasting several months here. So we're gonna work on getting her acclimated to the department, work on getting her to that conference, and then sometime in that August timeframe, we'll get signed up with Kalia to get that started. Um, ISO is something that Tom will talk to you about as it relates to fire. Uh, it Can't Wait is something that we um, also worked on. And uh, I thought we had those in here, didn't we? Or is it another yeah, slide? Okay, a couple okay. slides later, we'll talk more about that one. Um, providing community education, engagement, support uh, before, during, and after traumatic events, uh, strong, reliable, and integrated system of volunteer and community resources, maximizing the use of civilian capabilities to make deployment of specialized and highly technical personnel more efficient, evaluating public safety processes for opportunities to enhance environmental management practices. Those are some of of the other strategies that we're using. Uh, The activities that we use to support those strategies, um, we have a full-time Lawrence police Department Victim Services Coordinator. What that assures is that personal and individual outreach uh, takes place to all victims of high-risk crimes. This is not typically something you'll see in a police department. It's very very unique to our department. Many times this is funded from outside the department. We're funding this. This person's located within our department. Typically in larger cities, you'll see this uh, located within the courts or some type of an advocacy group. So having that point of contact within the department, again, is going to help somebody After that event, recover faster, it's going to help them be more successful as they work their way through the criminal justice process, and also connect them with additional services that they may need as they recover from whatever that crime was. We have two full-time and one part-time civilian investigators within the Special Victims Unit. Again, another program that's very unique within our department. In fact, uh, we've been doing this for about a year now, and uh, last week in my clip service, uh, the Baltimore Police Department announced that they were the first agency in the nation to use civilian investigators. So I had to circle that, send it to my team and say, why didn't we tell this story a year ago? And they were like, well, I think we did, but I can't remember. And so one of the things, as I met with all of you that I shared, is we have to do a better job telling our story. We have one of the best police departments that you will ever find in this country. We do cutting edge things like civilian investigators, and people here don't even know it. Um, in fact, no one in the nation knows it because I think Baltimore's doing it first. So <laughs> we're going to do a better job of telling that story um, because I think people need to know that we are doing some of the best practice things for law enforcement agencies. And if we do a better job telling that story, people are going to look to Lawrence for that information. We also have community partners that are helping with this as uh, as well. The CAC multidisciplinary team to improve child protection outcomes, prosecution, and family healing. Uh, Interviewing children who are victims of abuse, sexual abuse is a very complex uh, uh, task that requires specialized training. It requires experience. And so working with people that have that training that are able to to do those interviews really promotes a, a successful outcome. Back when I did this in the mid 1990s, uh, you had a detective that would you had a patrol officer that would interview the kid first. Then you had a detective that would interview the kid. Then you had a, a DFS worker. I was in Missouri, so it was Department of Family Services. They would interview the kid. And most likely, if the kid was injured, you had an emergency room uh, staff member interviewing the kid. So by the time you get to court, this kid's told told the story. Uh, five or six times. Well, children don't have the best memories, and especially when they've experienced a trauma, that memory is not going to be that solid. So you start seeing inconsistencies in stories, and believe it or not, there are defense attorneys out there that will attack a child's credibility through inconsistencies in a story uh, because they're trying to protect their, their client's interest as the suspect. This started in Kansas City in the mid '90s. Uh, Children's Mercy was housed uh, was was the agency that housed this this Child Protective Services interview uh, program. Now they're very common throughout. So it's it's one good thing to know that we've got that here. Very solid program that helps us with um, interviewing our children and making sure that they aren't having to tell that story over and over. Willow's coordinated community response team as our co-responder model so that we're able to respond on mental health calls with somebody who's had specialized training. Uh, this is a program that I'm very supportive of. Unfortunately, we don't have a co-responder right now, so we're working on trying to get that person identified. The person we had was so good that they selected him to be the director of the new treatment center that we're opening up, so we lost him. Um, but uh, we've we've done some talking with uh, uh, Bert Nash to see how we can um, – better expand that program, better use that program. Um, Again, it's just one of those tools in the toolbox that helps uh, a police officer assist. They are also getting ready to roll out, it's not our program, but uh, mental health response teams that are completely mental health workers responding to mental health calls. So we're removing the police out of that call entirely, uh, something that I have supported for a number of years. And I'm glad to see that here in Lawrence, we're actually able to do something like that. There is no reason a police officer should respond to a mental health call. It's not a, not a crime to be mentally ill. It's not a crime to be in psychosis. And so I'm glad to be in a city where we have the resources to be able to create a safe and secure outcome for our community members when they're in a mental health crisis. Uh, we also have a sexual assault team. Uh, a sexual assault response team. And again, these are very specialized crimes. They're not like somebody who gets their house broken into it. It's sort of a template that you can work through taking a report. A sexual assault is a very intimate crime. And it's one that uh, takes a very specialized set of skills to handle. Um, and, and as far as the interview, the, the evidence collection and uh, and one of those things when you have somebody who's experienced that high-risk crime, it provides people who are handling that. The other area of uh, equity inclusion uh, includes the fair and impartial delivery of services so that no group is disadvantaged or burdened along with having inclusive representation and participation for all. Um, one of the things we did, we talked about banning no-knock search warrants and chokeholds. I believe the word got out this time so that everybody heard it. But I think the key in that word getting out was using the language that our community was using. Um, it was No-knock search warrants were something that were rarely used here. Uh, chokeholds were something that were placed in the use of force level at deadly force, but, which, which essentially banned them uh, unless you're really fighting for your life. Um, but it didn't specifically use that word ban. And so um, one of the things that, that I really, my staff and I had a really robust discussion on this. Um, it's some people feel like if you use the word ban, it's like you're gonna create liability for yourselves. And part of my job is to manage that liability. And so working with the city attorneys, they didn't see that as an issue. Um, I, again, I repeated or I reiterated that we need to speak the language our community speaking. They want a ban, they're gonna get a ban. And so we did. Um, we hired a communications manager to help make sure that we are communicating more effectively. Um, we are also starting to meet with groups who um, are interested in reimagining policing in Lawrence as we work through this process. I've met with all of you, met with a number of community members from all over this community. Um, especially in our chamber members. Uh, Bonnie Lowe has been really helpful with that. Greg Gardner, one of our chaplains who's very well-rooted in this community has also done a really good job getting me access to people who are uh, important in our community, community leaders. And then also just walking around downtown and talking to folks with Sally Zagri, um, listening to what they're saying about what they want uh, policing to look like in their city. Um, And so we're reaching out to groups that maybe haven't had a seat at the table with the police department. And one of the things that you'll find with me is that anyone who wants a seat at the table will have a seat at the table. And I don't mean just sitting there listening. I mean, having a real uh, decision-making process, input into what we're doing. It's really important to me. I met with the NAACP before we announced that we were gonna do a uh, fan, no-knock search warrants and chokeholds. And when I was in that meeting, that was those were two of the things they asked me. They also asked me if we could uh, put de-escalation training higher up in our policy so it had a better emphasis. And we did that. And then they, they, I, I invited them to come to our de-escalation training um, as I invite any of you that want to experience that. We use uh, two of the best de-escalation trainings in the country. Again, not something that I knew before I took this job, and I did a pretty deep dive research. Um, The Police Executive Research Forum has developed uh, integrated communications and tactics. Uh, It's called ICAT. Um, It is considered one of the premier de-escalation strategies in the world. They developed it in connection with police agencies in um, England, Ireland, and Scotland, whose police officers don't carry weapons. And so they, they have lower uses of force than we do here, And so they used um, a lot of the models they had developed this. Um, The University of Cincinnati developed or conducted some research in its effectiveness. And it actually shows that after an agency goes through this training and adopts the policy, there's a significant reduction in use of force. All of your officers have been trained in ICAT. So we hopefully will continue to see low levels of use of force within our department. Um, The other thing that we're going to do is continue to move forward on CIT training. So under this uh, uh, tab as well, um, we've got about 50 to 60% of our officers trained in CIT. Uh, Chief Khatib, who was here uh, before I was, uh, had a goal of 100% of the officers trained in CIT training. And so I share that goal as well, as it'll fit right in here with uh, making sure that um, groups who are disadvantaged, those who are suffering maybe from mental illness or something along those lines, um, are receiving safe and secure service as well. The A can't wait mentioned that earlier. I just want to kind of run through some of these for you as we tie up uh, tie up this uh, uh, of the evaluation of this um, item. Uh, we ban choke holds and strangle holds. Uh, we required, we, I'm sorry, we require de-escalation in our policy and we've now put it higher up in the policy along with a uh, uh, sanctity of life statement. So we uh, we value human life above, above all other things. And so again, that's language that we have in there so that officers know the preservation of life is a high priority in our policy. Um, we tell officers to, uh, if they can, uh, uh, give a warning before they're shooting Um, We do require officers to exhaust all all alternatives before shooting as much as possible. We have duty to intervene in our policy. We have not issued a complete ban on shooting at moving, moving vehicles, although we do talk to officers about the dangers of shooting at a moving vehicle. The reason for not issuing a ban in this area is we've seen an increase in vehicle assaults on large crowds. We had one in Wisconsin this past Christmas at a Christmas parade, and we see some in Europe. So there may be an occasion where um, we have a danger to a large group of people. An outright ban would probably limit an officer believing that might be a legitimate use of force, but the way the policy is written, it is strongly discouraged to be firing at a moving vehicle. Uh, use of force continuum is something that is an outdated uh, police policy. Um, when I came on in 1990, the, the use of force continuum started with verbal commands, actually it starts with an officer's presence um, and goes from like verbal commands to open hand techniques all the way up to deadly force. And they're all along this line, if you think of a continuum. The problem with it was in civil trials, attorneys were um, making issue of officers not using every item along that continuum as they got to deadly force. So if somebody points a gun at me, I'm not required to use an open hand technique or use a baton to try and knock the gun out of their hand. I'm able to because that person's threatening me with lethal force to start there. So the current way of looking at use of force is a use of force matrix, where we have all of these available force options. The officer then evaluates the scene, the incident as they see it, and then makes an appropriate use uh, uh, or an appropriate decision on use of force based on the set of facts or circumstances that are presented to them. And with the eye and mind of a reasonable police officer in a similar situation. Uh, We do require comprehensive reporting and uh, uses of force are reviewed by a use of force board within the the organization. We look for policy violations, we look for training uh, issues that might be identified when an officer uses force. So we are are, we've got all of these things addressed um, in a manner within our policies and practices right now. Community uh, equity and inclusion again. This is still mine, right? Okay, good. (laughs) Um, Sorry, I'm uh, getting ahead of myself here. So uh, we are looking forward to the community survey to establish some better baseline data. Some of our data points um, were based on the 2019 survey. Um, They didn't capture all of the items that were identified in the strategic plan. So uh, you may have read a news article that talked about we used quality for trust. And uh, because the question specifically about trust wasn't a- asked in the uh, 2019 survey, we do have that question in there now. We also will be having with this survey, more sampling uh, in our underserved uh, areas that are typically not real responsive to surveys. So we'll get some better demographic data that we can drill down into to see how it's affecting safe and secure within the community. The Community Police Review Board Working Group is another one that will be focusing on that equity and inclusion. Right now their current mission uh, in ordinance is to review client complaints of bias-based policing and racial profiling. Um, Last week when we had our meeting, uh, I, uh, uh, for the first time ever, shared all of our complaint information with them, not just bias-based policing. Uh, I also shared with them a summary of each complaint. Uh, We did have one complaint that was bias-based. It was in January. It was an exonerated complaint. Um, It was a situation where um, a youth was riding a bicycle a couple of blocks away from a theft call at a video store. Uh, The officer stopped him very quickly, determined that he was not the person who was involved and released him. Um, It was a very short encounter. Um, His grandmother is the one who filed the complaint. Um, again, we we accept third party complaints, something that most police departments don't do. Uh, we invested the complaint and determ- determined that the officer did have enough information that wasn't related to race to make a stop, uh, a legitimate police stop. The the uh, individual wasn't detained very long once the officer determined that he wasn't involved in the, the crime. Uh, We also are looking with, uh, they had their first look at our proposal this last meeting as well, uh, looking at a review of not only their proposed draft ordinance, but also a a pretty deep dive into our complaint process to determine uh, what role they will play in uh, complaints, review of complaints and those kinds of things. So that will help with our equity and inclusion data point, we hope within the safe and secure. The last thing we're gonna be doing is reviewing recommendations for the decriminalization of poverty from the anti-poverty coalition. We've had a couple of meetings with them that I've been part of. Uh, There were others that were taking place, so we will continue moving forward with that work group to make sure that we uh, we don't have practices that are criminalizing poverty for people and creating a cycle of poverty within the criminal justice system. All oh, right, right. School resource officer. Um, if you want to work on schooling that up, uh, Porter, I'll talk about it a little bit just to set it up. We have four school resource officers, two at uh, Lawrence High and two at Free State High School. Uh, this is a program, if you remember, in 2020, a lot of people were talking about we need to get police out of our schools. Uh, I will hope that after you watch this video, you will see that these police officers are an essential part of Uh, our school or our students experience in the high schools. And uh, hopefully if we ever get to that point where funding can expand, we can get them into the middle schools as well. These officers are not there to do typical police work. They're not arresting, they're not enforcing school policy. They aren't aren't doing things like that. They're meeting the kids as mentors. Um, They're having a positive impact on their lives. Uh, When uh, I had a presentation from one of my uh, groups called Blue Santa that I hope to get in front of you guys. Uh, A school resource officer found out there was a kid at Lawrence High who was not coming to school because he didn't have any shoes. Um, I can't imagine, uh, I've never been in that situation where I didn't have shoes to go to school. None of my kids have ever been in that situation, but because there was a school resource officer at Lawrence High that was paying attention to a kid who wasn't in school, and then went a step further and found out why, um, he contacted one of my officers who has a, a sneaker program, got that kid a pair of shoes and now he's back at school. On another occasion, we stopped a Lawrence High School student uh, because a car was licensed improperly. We get a hold of him. Um, He doesn't have a valid driver's license and uh, find out that he's working three jobs to support his family. A Lawrence High School student is working three jobs to support his family. So uh, we, uh, we get with the Blue Santa program get his uh, driver's education paid for so he can get a valid driver's license. And then we work on getting additional services for him. School resource officers were the ones that were instrumental in making that happen. So those are the stories that we're gonna start telling so that you all hear them. Uh, those are the stories that the, the staff will tell you about here about how important important it is. But the other thing with school resource officers is the, the goodwill that we get with each student goes home with all of those students. It goes home to their parents. It goes home to their friends, their neighbors. It is one of the biggest impact programs that we have for building trust in your police. It is one of the biggest impact programs we have for building safe and secure areas for your students to go to school. And so uh, with that, um, Porter, go ahead and start the video and uh, enjoy high school may help you. The SR
15: program here in Lawrence Public Schools is one that is just invaluable because of the connections it can make with with law enforcement
1: and some of our students
0: and kids get to know them and feel like they're people they can go and
8: confide in
1: so as recently as today we had a student that was going through some trauma that out of 200 plus staff that we have in the building mentioned one of our school resource officers as a trusted adult from our first lunch period to our fourth lunch period there are groups of students that flock to these guys because what they do is they build relationships with students
21: just because they have a badge it's just not like they're a robot they can build relationships with other kids kids like me who are struggling they always check up on me every morning lunchtime i'll sit there and me and them will chat
23: she's chill you can talk to her like cops are not there just to like protect and like serve the law they're people too so like you can talk to her if you need
1: the reason i became an officer was because i had an interaction when i was in school With our school resource officer after three or four years of uh, misbehaving. And it made a huge difference in my life because that's when I pivoted and I'm here doing this now. I have that experience, so when I recognize that, I I gravitate towards those kids. We need our kids to see them outside of what they see on TV. And
0: staff too, not just the students, but staff as well, that presence in the building, um, they know that if um, there was a crisis, that that we do have professionals here who can handle it in the best way and keep everybody as safe as possible.
1: Our SROs help build a culture here in our building, and they also make it a much safer place. One of the things that I hear our teachers complain about, what do we do in a crisis situation? And having our SROs here on campus provides me as the director of facilities with a sense of security. If I'm able to make decisions knowing that I have support, that'll provide additional support for our teachers and help them feel more secure and safe on campus.
2: I think they make us feel safe because I know they're trained and I know they know how to handle a situation like It makes our students feel comfortable. It makes our students get to know
15: law enforcement, and that's critical, especially um, in today's world.
1: Um, We have had situations where we've had guns on campus, and what we're left with without our school resource officers is myself and security guards that have no weapons at all approaching somebody that may have a deadly weapon.
23: I know for a fact that I can put my life in his hands if the situation calls for it. And I feel safer knowing that we have officers in the school with the tools they need to keep us safe.
1: That community and that culture that we have here at Lawrence High with our school resource officers um, just provides a sense of security that I think is unmatched anywhere. And I really wouldn't want to do our job without them here. I know personally that a lot of these kids have changed their view of police because of Colado and Brown. As long as they're here, they don't have to worry about the dangers of the world or whatever bad could happen, it won't happen here. They see beyond this uniform, they see beyond this badge. They trust me.
21: I feel very safe. I feel safe at my school. You
4: know, she'd be
1: in this tough outfit,
23: some Call of Duty type stuff. You know, it looks hard. But hey, she a
12: badass woman, I'm not gonna lie.
17: All right, I'll go back to the presentation here. It was a great video.
21: Okay, moving on into the next commitment area, we're gonna be talking about the commitment of efficient effective services. Two performance indicators specifically tonight uh, that pertains to fire medical services. Uh, We're first gonna cover performance indicator 3% of fires contained to the room of origin. As you can see, we have seen a slight increase from 2020 to 2021. Uh, We are now at 61% with a target of 90%. Uh, this is um, a target that we are very committed to pursuing, uh, but we are still uh, well below that—twenty-nine percent below uh, that target on containing fires to the rim of origin. Um, when we dig into the the why behind that, and um, those of you that that know me, and those that are watching, and maybe in the audience, um, I do look at data pretty closely. I think at my time as an accreditation manager's. Um, you know, brought that into me is to investigate the why behind certain measures. And so when we when we peel back the layers to really see what the why is behind this, uh, we found that 25% of the time, fires had extended beyond the room of origin upon our arrival. And so what we found is that we are not arriving soon enough to confine these riot fires at this target. So the next question would be, Are we skilled enough? Are we trained enough at a level to confine fires to the room of origin? So when we look at those instances, when we are put in a position to stop loss at that condition, we are holding the fire at the room of origin between 80 and 90% of the time when we're positioned to do so. And so your Lawrence Douglas County Fire Medical firefighters provide high quality services, but we do have challenges when we arrive and the fire is extended uh, beyond where we want it to be. We cannot take away fire damage that has already occurred. We can only stop it where we find it. So moving to the next performance indicator, performance indicator four, percent of cardiac arrests, patients with pulsatile rhythms upon arrival to the hospital. So this is the percentage of return of spontaneous circulation when we arrive on scene and somebody has been in cardiac arrest, what percentage of the time do we get essentially a pulse back before we make transfer before we transfer care to the hospital? This one also is below target 36.7% of the time. And again, digging into the data, we also look at uh, there is a whole report of microdata on cardiac arrest survivability. Um, in fact, we have a, a tremendous resource on our staff, Division Chief Kevin Jules, Um teaches on a national level. In fact, I think he's even taught internationally on our protocol for cardiac arrest resuscitation, which is essentially is a pit crew resuscitation style. Um, we found that our outcomes when we're positioned to do well is nearly five times the national average of a high quality of life post resuscitation. So what that means is not only are our survivors, when we do resuscitate them successfully, they're living a high quality of life post resuscitation. And ultimately that's what we want. We want people to not only survive the event, but to have a great life post resuscitation. And so again, demonstrating the quality of service that we're able to deliver when we're positioned to do so. The strategies uh, that we pursue here, and uh, we're gonna talk more about this and uh, really to follow up with, with Chief Lockhart, the strategies that have been identified for these commitments and outcomes, um, were really scratching the surface and some of them are, are very broad. So we'll start with the first one in this instance, promote prevention information and provide rapid and skilled emergency response to control the, f- the spread of fire. And so when we look at that strategy, we see, okay, we provide prevention activities. We work in that space. We provide skilled emergency response to control the spread of fire and we need to be rapid in our efforts to do. So that's our strategy to stop loss, to control fires. Similarly, on cardiac arrest, provide rapid and skilled emergency response to cardiac arrest events. Then use community empowerment and education to eliminate, reduce, and respond to events, trends, activities that pose the greatest threat to safety and security. And then we've got another bullet on here that's that's gold. And you'll see some of those others in some of the other slides as you um, and moving forward and even in the previous slides, and those gold strategies are things that we're looking to incorporate more into, into a strategic plan to make an impact on these performance indicators. But as you'll see over the next several slides, our resources are not getting there fast enough to provide the quality outcome that we want to provide in these targets. And we need to move towards solutions to do so. So again, digging back into the data, right? Cardiac arrest and building fires response reliability. We're looking at two maps here. Uh, Both of them are the city of Lawrence. You'll see that there's separation out in planning zones. And what we do is we look at planning zones to look at distribution of quality response performance across the city. And so starting with the map on the left, which is structure fire response time performance in 2021. Looking at the legend first, blue shaded planning zones would be when we're hitting our target. And then the color changes from light yellow to gold to pink. And so what you see there is that we are not hitting our targets in any planning zone across the city for response time on structured fires. The map on the right, 2021 cardiac arrest response time performance. The legend is the same in the color identification. In every planning zone, we are not hitting our response time targets. So time and the outcome. Time being related to the outcomes of cardiac arrest survivability and fires being confined. This slide is to show you some imagery of how time can impact the outcomes on these different event types. We'll first focus on the home fire timeline on the left side there. And it may be a little small on the screen, those that are at our home. Um, but essentially, this this is a a graphic image of fire growth within a residential building. And in this image, it talks about, and over the first few minutes, what happens when a smoke detector is a, is alarming. If there is a sprinkler system in place, how fire is begin is began to be controlled by a sprinkler system. In the absence of a sprinkler system, how fire continues to grow over minutes. Notification of the fire medical department, allowing them time to respond to the fire, get their tools in position in order to stop the fire from growing further. Similarly, the CPR timeline, there's some information in here when we talk about quality of life, not only surviving the event, but surviving the event with a quality of life. We talk about brain damage in the absence of good perfusion provided by high quality CPR brain perfusion can be delayed and ultimately result in brain damage. And so although we may save somebody's life physiologically, they may have quality of life deficits post resuscitation. And so you can see as the longer that time goes on, especially in the absence of CPR, the negative outcome associated with that. One of the things I wanna talk about related to, not just time, but a full balanced spectrum for community risk reduction that can enhance all risk reduction across the community. And emergency response is just one piece of that. So you'll see that image towards the bottom of the slide there are the five E's, emergency response, economic incentive, education, engineering, and enforcement. There's actually a sixth E, which is empowerment in the community. And so these are different dimensions that we're gonna be pursuing to not only improve our response performance, but to reduce risk in the community from these events occurring, and also the impact of when they do occur. All right, so now we've got a, a video we're gonna share with you, and I'm gonna set this up Porter here while you're while you're doing that. So on July 23rd, 2021, um, there was a, a, a call that came out on the Jayhawk Club golf course during a golf tournament. And um, we had a great outcome tied to uh, effective bystander CPR. When we talk about the impact of CPR, and you heard it and you saw on in the intro video, uh, how we're rolling out the PulsePoint mobile application as just a tremendous opportunity for us to improve the chances of survivability in the community. When bystander CPR is performed, it increases the chances of survival by three times. And so that's something we are actively working on is getting that message out, educating not just um, the community, but also all city employees is one of the missions that we're on as well. We started that here recently with the MSO department. We're excited about that. But with that, Porter, if you want to go ahead and start it. Douglas County 911. Is this a police, fire, or medical emergency? Medical, medical. What's the address? We had someone just collapse
23: on the. We had someone collapsed at the Jayhawk Club golf course. Okay, what's the address? Something Birdie Way. I don't know. Crossgate Court. It's a golf course. The Jayhawk Club golf course. Jayhawk Club.
0: Okay, give me one second. Level three response.
14: Medic 4, medical incident, 1800, Birdie Way, 1800, Birdie Way, Adult 47. We're trying CPR. Okay, so you're doing CPR? We're trying. Okay, so he's, he's not
0: he's breathing.
21: breathing?
14: He's not breathing. Level 2, response. Italian 6, engine 4, Medic 4, cardiac arrest, 1800, Birdie Way, 1800, Birdie Way. Patient
1: may have been moved With it, to we start, start screaming because remember that it's a golf tournament. So there's to people on every hole. The guys on the on tenth or eleventh, they thought we were screaming because we made a putt. So they're just waving back at us. Um, and suddenly they realized by the tone of our voice that we weren't that we weren't excited about something. We're we trying to figure out what's going
11: on. And then as we got closer, we saw somebody down on the ground. And went up and, up and I told Scott I know CPR. And uh, he kept going for a few more minutes
21: and then he said, he said, I can't do it anymore. And uh, then I said, I got it. And I hopped in and, and performed chest compressions.
19: blockage uh, in my LAD, and not very many people survived to talk about that. Um, Life is a blessing. I truly feel blessed. I've got a second chance at life.
17: Good Porter. Good.
5: Yeah. Okay. Oh, sorry. I thought you knew. Okay. <laughs>
21: well, um, that was a tremendous outcome and we're actually honored uh, today to have Carl with us uh, in the audience. And so very special guest. So Carl, um, you'd like to come up and share a few your comments. Uh, so now officially uh, Carl is, is famous. <laughs> he's, he's officially a movie star. So. That was,
19: that was bad. Well, good evening. Um, I'm, truly lucky uh and and do feel blessed to be here um just to this is more about the uh, first responders and, and not me they are the heroes and um i had an opportunity to meet them uh recently just to look them in the eye and say thank you for saving my life and to a person let's face it they don't do their jobs because they want the accolades they don't do it for the glory that's just what they do. And um, in their minds, they're not heroes. They did their job. But to my wife, Peggy, uh, three children, four grandchildren, you try to tell us they're not heroes. They are truly, truly heroes. So um, uh, just very quickly, I was playing golf on the 23rd of July and um, I didn't remember a thing, by the way. I was totally out of it, which was good. Um, I was playing golf and I had a 99% blockage in my LAD, the left anterior descending artery. They call that the widow maker for a reason. And you saw the stat, 12% chance of survival. And I made it. So I am truly a miracle. And it's um, in part because of the um, fellow golfers that started right away to do CPR, and then the first responders that did their job and made it possible for me to be here. So I will owe them for forever. I feel um, tied to the hips with them and um, I wanna thank them. I wanna thank you all for supporting them because um, because of your support and they're, they are truly professionals. They know what they're doing, they're well-trained. Again, they do it because they love it. But with your help, um, they continue to uh, make this place a great community to to live and to raise a family. I've lived in Lawrence for 32 years, and I'm very proud to be a part of this community. And so um, I thank them personally, and I want to thank you for your service as leaders for this uh, great city of Lawrence. So um, it's been a long evening. That's all I have to say, but I just wanted to share my story. And um, again, thank you all, and thanks to the police department, the fire department um, for for what they did for me and my family. It goes beyond just me and the family. When something like this happens, it affects family, friends, and the community. Um, I've had uh, friends that, because of my incident, they had their arteries checked. Um, I had a handful of them now on medication. I had one had a stent put in. They had enough blockage to where they had a stent put in. So um, it affects the community. After my incident, um, Thomas and Drew Fritzel, they opened up um, the Jayhawk Club and had several sessions of CPR classes. Every single session was full. That included me and uh, my wife, Peggy. We attended and um, now we have a lot of people that are trained and ready and eager to jump in if needed. So again, when it happens, it affects a lot of people and it affects the community. So I think they're correct in in, in their goal here to get education and get people armed to where they can jump in. Because that old motto of if you see something, do something, that's what it takes. And the more people we get trained, the more equipment we put in their hands, the easier it will be to save lives. So that's enough for me. Thank you for um, letting me come talk to you. And um, thank you all again, one more time.
21: Yes, thank you, Carl, for joining us. Um, it's, it's neat to, to see the positive outcomes and that's what we want. We want those positive outcomes to tell those good stories. So let me get back to the next slide on the presentation here. Okay, so again, still in the efficient and effective processes, this is some information from our station optimization analysis, again, looking deep into the data as to why we are not meeting our targets, and so first focusing on the map on the left, uh, I first want to bring your attention to, obviously, this is the city of Lawrence. We have our five fire medical stations that are identified on the map, and there is this green shaded area around that. What that green shaded area is a GIS analysis of four minutes travel time from each one of our fire medical stations. This is essentially showing what type of drive time capabilities do we have when everybody is available in their stations, they're not on a call, there isn't snow or ice on the ground, and we can provide a high quality response associated with that quality outcome. And so what we've been able to identify is also where the gaps are in our capabilities. And so on that same map, what you can see is these red ovals areas. And these red oval areas are geographical gap areas that we do not have the capability to provide emergency response time performance to those areas associated with the quality outcomes. And so this green shaded area, these five stations, these were designed for a reason this way. They were actually designed back in the 90s and was fully implemented in 2006. And what this is called is our standards of cover. So our standards of cover that is currently in place is from the 90s to provide coverage to the community. And so currently, as the community has changed over time, so today what we are doing is we have more call volume and not only are we responding in those areas of the green shaded parts, We're also responding into these geographical gap areas more and more often. And so when we look to the map on the right, and this is the gap area to the north, and this is data that was captured in that report, you can see the distribution of response time performance on emergency calls. We only meant the the goal of four minutes travel time in this oval 34% of the time. 34% of the time, did we actually arrive with the response time goal that we have 43% of the time, it was between four and six minutes travel time and then 23% of the time it was beyond six minutes travel time. So this is something that we're working to address uh, in order to put us in a position to provide higher quality outcomes. So again, that standards of cover that was implemented with the opening of fire medical station number five in 2006, the graph on the left shows what has happened over time since then. We've had a 62, over a 62% increase in call volume. And so what that does is that impacts our ability to re- respond to other emergency events with this increasing call volume. The Information on the right is opportunity. Currently, we talked about that community risk reduction program, the full spectrum of services, emergency response services only being one piece of that. When we look into our non emergency data, which we're currently using emergency resources for, there may be opportunities for a differential type of response to where we can create um, more reliability of emergency services with less demand by using alternative resource types. That may be an opportunity for us in the future. And we may be wanting to bring that into the strategic plan. If you, if you remember, we had that gold bullet point on there and we're gonna to get to more of that, about that here in a few minutes, but looking at different strategies on how we can move the needle on these performance indicators is what we're trying to do. Okay, so the increasing demand. So we looked at that, that four minute shaded area. So again, focusing on the map on the right on this slide. Each one of the fire medical stations, if you remember on the previous slide, each one of those had a green shaded area around it. Well, what we're showing is the impact of multiple calls that are occurring over time and how that impacts our ability to provide quality response time performance. And so in this example, we're showing where there's two simultaneous incidents. One of them is a structure fire shown in the, in the Northwest part of the city there with the gold star. The second one is a blue star showing just um, a breathing problem deployment, which is a medical call. It's a level two medical call for us. Those two calls, what that does to our standards of cover in order to provide quality response time performance. You can see that blanket of coverage has now diminished considerably. And so the more that these calls are occurring, it's impacting that blanket of coverage for quality response time. So here's the question. So with all this information, what do we do? right, we look at data, we wanna make data informed decisions. We're recommending to implement the, the station optimization study. We know this is a considerable investment But we have service gaps that we're trying to address in order to meet these goals identified in the strategic plan. The strategies identified rapid, highly skilled performance. We are providing highly skilled performance and we are providing rapid a portion of the time, but it is not in a a consistent way in order to meet our outcome targets that we want to achieve. The price tags there, $30 million over the next five years, it would be an integrated approach Um, Not not all stations would be at the same time. Um, This would be a three station project, an expansion station in the Northwest, an expansion station in the South, and a relocation of fire medical station number three into a more strategic location for more balanced coverage. So that 30 million would cover the capital. There's an additional cost and operating expenses to cover the personnel, and the operating expenses in order to effectively deploy out of those locations. If we don't do that, the increasing demand is gonna to continue to erode away at our outcomes that we're wanting to provide and that our service level standards would not be consistent with where we're wanting to go with our outcomes. So strategic plan and further development. So getting back to some of those gold bullet points and some of those were even on some of the earlier performance indicators. You can see that there are a lot of plans. We've got our accreditation process. Uh, We have our our last accreditation report, which was completed in 2018. In fact, we're getting ready to apply for accreditation again this fall. Uh, We have the station optimization analysis. We've got a brand new department level strategic plan. I'm excited to talk to you more about that in a few weeks. I think that is May 3rd. Uh, We have our community risk assessment standards of cover. We also have ISO. ISO is currently in and they're doing a report right now on on what our rating is going to be in the future. So as we look towards impacts of these outcomes, um, we need to be thinking about how we can incorporate the recommendations for all of of these different plans and reports into our strategies to make sure that we're working towards these targets that we wanna be working towards and achieving that. also, in addition to that, uh, the police study report is on here. And uh, Chief Lockhart, if you wanted to go to this link here, actually I need to test that to make sure it works. Spinning.
22: Circle of
21: spinning. Oh, it's going somewhere. Okay, I think we're <laughs> good. Right. Okay.
22: okay. All right, Chief Lockhart. <laughs> so uh, this is the report formerly known as CityGate. So we're calling it the police report now. So uh, this is available to, I think we sent it out to everyone if you go to Uh, lawrencekansas.org slash police slash assessment, or if you want to click on the agenda, you can find it. Um, There are 60 key findings, 75 specific action items. So we are right now um, not gonna give you a full report on all of these, I'm sure that's a relief um, because we won't be able to do it justice. So we're gonna come back to you at a future meeting to go through these more specifically. But I did wanna let folks know Um, That uh, in our being open with our community, we've now transformed this into an area where you can go and check our progress on these indicators. So some of these uh, have been evaluated. Um, Some of them are under review. So here's a a report finding. The department's goals and objectives do not reflect the city commission's strategic plan. There are no budget performance measures to align investment in police programs with desired community outcomes for public safety and quality of life. So the recommendation was that we must have a strategic plan with annual goals, objectives, data-driven performance measures closely reflective of and aligned to the city's strategic plan and budget. Revised department goals must be published as part of recruitment, new employee training, promotion testing, and annual performance reporting. Uh, The action item is that uh, we are examining a timeline for the department's strategic plan. The CityGate report acts as a framework for a plan until that time will be an extension of the Lawrence strategic plan. Um, This is still under review and that's part of what you've seen tonight. So um, Craig and Brandon and I are working very hard to fold this into the the city strategic plan and see how it fits in uh, with that. So you can go through and look at all of these. And then if you look at the end, um, here's how we've linked some of these back to the strategic plan. So these two uh, findings and recommendation and action items are tied to safe and secure number one and safe and secure number eight. Um, so not all of these things are completed, but you can go through. And again, as I said, we'll, uh, we're will we going to provide you a more deeper dive into this at a future meeting. But I did, didn't want to leave this off because this is a very important part of what we're doing every day to keep Lawrence safe and secure.
17: see.
21: All right, well, to wrap this up um, before we move on to questions, um, what I would emphasize, and really a lot of the concentrated, like we said at the beginning of this, focused information, right? Lots of performance indicators within Safe and Secure. There's lots of work occurring. We've got the new community survey that's gonna be coming out soon. We're gonna get more detailed information to help guide us on where we can uh, realign our work to continue to do focused activities to achieve what the community is really wanting from us. So um, lots of great stuff coming. I think the next presentation from Safe and Secure is coming in around five weeks. And so we're gonna be bringing more information that may not be so specific to Fire Medical. It may be from one of those numerous other groups that are tied to the Safe and Secure outcome. So I just wanted to thank you for your attention this evening, and we'd be happy to answer any questions that you have and to receive your feedback.
0: Thank you both so much. Let's make sure there's no questions from the commission. I have to give a minute. Um,
5: Chief Fagan, yes. um, as I'm looking at your graphs, I remember when you gave the really detailed presentation a couple of years ago, I think it was, about the optimization plan. Um, the graph that you've got here um, that shows the total incident count from 2006 to 2021, um, Have you guys parsed that out to show the difference between the um, medical versus fire calls? Because if I remember right, that was the medical calls were what were really increasing over time. Is that correct?
21: Yes, we do parse that out. Uh, In fact, that's a part of our uh, reporting processes. And I don't have those specific numbers, the breakdown with me this evening uh, on how they're all separated out. But um, I I think it's around 70 to 80% of our call volume is medically related. When um, we start talking about those alternative response opportunities, and um, there is a variance of acuity. When we talk about medical calls, different levels of severity. Uh, as you saw, one of the one of the pieces I had pulled out of there was a call type of a sick call, um, and so that call per se, that call type per se, um, would not necessitate an emergency response. And so the accumulation of those call types along with other call types that may be non-emergency in nature is something that we're very aware of because it impacts our ability to provide emergency services. And so to answer your question, yes, we do have the ability to distribute that out. And yes, we continue to see increases in call volume. I don't have the increase on what that would be over time specifically to medical calls, but the majority of our call volume is medical related.
5: Okay. Thanks. So in that regard with the, the need for the three stations that was out detail in the report, I remember part of the discussion, I, if I remember correctly on that, was that since the medical calls seem to be the ones that continuously increase over, have been increasing over time in relation to the fire calls, the possibility of uh, having um, stations that are just for medical only um, to, in order to, or EMS versus having to build an entire fire EMS house, that there may be some efficiencies if we expand it to more um, just to have the EMSs in in very better, in more locations versus a fire. Um, it seems like that was part of our discussion then at, in 2020 or whenever it was. So I'd be interested to hear more about that when you guys do your um, presentation. Um, coming up here.
21: Absolutely. Um, I would add that uh, adding ambulances would help in certain call type events, providing a faster response time. Um, But our ambulances, although they're staffed with firefighters, they do not have um, water, they do not have fire hoses, and they do not have a pump to provide the adequate water pressure to stop loss and structure fire events. And so those geographical gap areas still exist for fire risk and not just for medical risk, but the the ambulance piece would help for the medical risk and some other things. But those uh, first arriving units, if they're ambulances, they are not effectively equipped to provide the critical task that needs to occur for the first arriving unit on a fire incident. Yeah, I'm not talking about for fire calls. I'm just talking specifically
5: for EMS calls. There may be... Possibility that there could be some savings or more efficiencies if we would have an um, EMS building versus the whole thing if we didn't need it. So it'd be, not, it'd be nice to see the breakdown of those times that you had. Is, are those medical calls or those fire calls? Um, what are they? So it'd be, and I know you've got that data because I, I know I've
21: seen your work. So yeah. I appreciate that. We do have the data. Uh, our recommendation would be to address the service gap, to incorporate all risk into the provision to ensure that we're providing um, to cover the fire risk as well. One of the challenges that that puts the medical crew in, if that medical crew is the first arriving unit, they are put in a very challenging position, particularly if there is an emergency rescue that's needed. They are firefighters. They do have self-contained breathing apparatus. We wanna make sure that they have the proper protection in place when they arrive on scene of fires appreciate
0: that yeah Yeah. well to that end i probably wouldn't have asked under the circumstances um but your commitment area efficient effective process and you have the two stars that show the simultaneous incidents and chief coffee may have answered this in the past and i just don't remember the answer i'm sure there is one but you send a fire apparatus out for breathing problem um and I, I know there are certain things you you send everyone out for. So um, maybe a little bit to push in a direction you're also speaking, I think. Um, is that always necessary? And, and why do you make that decision? How do you make that decision?
21: Yes, thanks, Mayor Shipley. So our deployment model is based off of a uh, quality practice deployment concept through ProQA, uh, which is, essentially triages medical calls. And here recently, actually in 2021, working with our emergency communication center, we've enhanced our deployment process through the alarm processing process and actually been able to reduce our total response time a little bit through that process. But our emergency dispatchers are a critical piece of this. And so as soon as they identify that it's a medical call and that they have a location, they immediately dispatch an ambulance right now to get somebody rolling. Now, there's somebody that stays on the phone with the caller to continue gathering information about the condition of the patient, and there are are specific questions that they're asking, and what those questions do is follow a protocol that's validated uh, called ProQA, and what that process does is identifies that are there certain things that are going on with that patient that may be leading to another event type. So right now, they may be experiencing shortness of breath, but they also may be having chest pain. Those two things together, even the call may have been dispatched as a difficulty breathing, may be indicative of a myocardial infarction, which could result in a cardiac arrest. And so that call type and the the validation of the questions that the emergency dispatchers are trained to do is what identifies the call package to make sure that we send the adequate amount of resources to the scene to best take care of our patients.
0: Any other questions? (laughs) Go ahead. Go ahead. No,
17: no.
4: Go ahead.
0: <laughs> I got quite a few more than you probably needed. go for it okay
4: so this is um thank you Chief Fagan and thank you Chief Lockhart for being here this evening I do have a couple of questions that uh piggyback on each other for both of you all so I know Chief Lockhart you brought up the um the CIT uh, uh training. And I'm drawing a blank on CIT.
22: Crisis intervention, crisis
4: intervention training. I had to, I had it there and I lost it. So the crisis intervention training, and then I'm looking at, I know Chief Fagan, you brought up the response time as it overlaps with the uh, room of origin. And so I noticed the response time is not necessarily a key performance indicator in the CIT training is not it is not a kpi but it kind of fits into that annual in-service piece so i wanted to know if your question chief Fagan. when you come up is in regards to kind of the overlapping the response time is that a internal kind of performance indicator that you hope to rises to being an indicator within the strategic plan or is that something that you're marrying with it because it has those they they piggyback off each other. So there's a need to have them in
21: order to tell the full story
4: for that indicator.
21: That's correct. It is a contributing factor. Uh, Response times and demand are output measures. The outcome measure is the result of the event. And so the outcome measure that's in here is the result of the fire and the quality of stop loss performance that we're able to provide. And so essentially the response times, um, some of the detailed information we were able to provide are the micro data behind the why as to the, the outcome. We're able to demonstrate with, with the quality that we're providing when we're positioned, able to stop loss, And but when we're not, we cannot provide that measure. So I, our recommendation isn't necessarily to bring response time as one of the KPIs. That is something that we're tracking and trending, and we can always provide that to you. In fact, we'll talk about that here in a few weeks with our accreditation report. But the output, the outcome, key difference, the outcome being fires contained and cardiac arrest survivability or the return of spontaneous circulation are the two outcome areas that we have related to to those two items.
4: Okay, thank you. And so, Chief Lockhart, for you with the crisis intervention training, I noticed that in the in the police report, formerly known as Citygate, that there was. I like that. It's catching on. I know. know. It rolled off pretty quickly. It did. (laughs) Um, There was the recommendation in regards to the finding, the report found that, or finding number 35 said that there was no formal in-service training mandate for non-sworn employees. And I didn't know if, was that taken into account with the, I know for both fire and medical, no, this is law enforcement officers. So I just wanted to, Maybe have you both kind of speak to, it seems to be we're fairly below where we want to be in that metric. And based on the strategies, do you feel like this is going to, how is that tracking right now?
22: Uh, Well, as you mentioned, it's tracking below average. And so one of the things that um, Henry Ford said is what's important is what gets measured. And so for us, uh, aligning our priorities with what's being measured in the strategic plan is going to be how we're going to be moving forward. And so uh, getting everybody on board, aligning what's in CityGate with the city's strategic plan will be really important over the next uh, few weeks. And so I hope that when we come back to you with updates that you'll start to see some of those numbers moving along. Some of them are gonna be more difficult because we don't have real good baseline data. Um, So for instance, the, the question about trust with the lawrence police department we don't have a way to measure that right now uh, without using that 2019 survey. The new survey will have that specific question. So when that comes back in uh, probably November, December, we will have some good baseline data. And then we'll be able to talk about how much we can move that and uh, and what that will look like for you in a future update. Um, CIT training is one that you'll see in several of the strategic indicators. It's, it's safe and secure number one, where we're talking about uh, delivering uh, service to people that makes them feel safe and ser- secure in their community. And I'm trying to figure out, I can't uh, can't read it here, but it's the other one that talks about um, uh, providing uh, service across a diverse segment of our community and some of our underserved areas. So folks with mental illness would be within that group of folks who are underserved, especially when we look at our unsheltered population.
4: So with the survey that we're ha- gonna have come out, I know i shared with i shared last week with porter with the survey in honing in on that ability to disaggregate the data and so i it sounds like based on this that we are going to get that and i really would like to see us hone in that i'm i'm, I'm a little shocked that we don't have that data we've had the survey and so i think in this time it you know disaggregated data does not new. It's not something no. that's a nuance. So I, I'm glad that we're 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 calling that out and that we're going to be intentional about breaking it down. Cause I love the fact that we have an 82% resident, you know, response rate that our residents feel like Lawrence is safe and very safe. But again, love covers all sins. Sure. But it doesn't, I mean it doesn't include aggregated data. And this is telling a story that may not necessarily be a story for some. So
22: Well, and I'll tell you what's great about this. The surveys is in Warrensburg when we did it, you could look at the data and there were little donuts of the city where I could see where there was a lower satisfaction with police service. And so for us, we were able to strategically focus our assets in that area and find out why that was. Um I have a degree in biology most of some of you may know and I'm always looking at data and asking why. Now I'm not chief fagan with data <laughs> but you know when I see stuff like that I want to know why. Yeah, I know yeah. <laughs> I'm the storyteller but I want to know why. Tell me why that exists and there's a reason why and and it, what it helps us with is you know I had 9 square miles in Warrensburg we've got 39 square miles in Lawrence. Um I I have to use my scarce resources in a more effective manner. And so when I know we'll see those things here because those exist in every community and we can go into those neighborhoods with officers and find out what's going on. Why, why is there a lower level of trust of the police in this area? Why is there a lower level of satisfaction with the police in this area? And it could be very simple things. It, it could be things that are more complicated. Um, and, and so we don't know what that'll be, but I'm really looking forward to getting that survey data back and really putting that into the strategic plan and finding out how we can make Lawrence safer and more secure uh, once we have some of that baseline data.
4: And to add to that, and this will be my last question. Do you? I know you talked about having key stakeholders kind of help connect you to other stakeholders in the community. Do you feel like you are able? Do you feel like you are accomplishing or have access to meet with the different subgroups in our in our global ecosystem, which is Lawrence? Are you tapping into particular? Communities, whether it's communities of color, um, LGBTQ communities, home, are you? Do you feel like you're getting access to those to those groups to have those conversations?
22: I do feel like I am, and one of the best pieces. Well, Craig's given me a lot of really good pieces of advice, but one of the best ones I've gotten so far. And you'll remember this con- this question I asked all of you: Who else should I talk to? And he said to keep asking that question until they start giving you the same person. I haven't gotten there yet i've had about probably 70 or 80 community meetings i've had about 50 to 60 uh, meetings with all of my employees i've got about 120 to go internally i have no idea how many to go within the community so i'm continuing to have those meetings um, i get people that call me and say hey i want to sit down and talk and we do um, it, it's just it's the way you get to know your community i didn't grow up here um i've i've been visiting for a long time but you know i'd didn't know about all the neighborhoods. I didn't know about all of those things until I've been here. And I've been here, I think it's about three months now. Um, It's going really fast. And, uh, you know, I got a nice dose of what downtown's like when we win a national championship. (laughs) My wife was here in 88. I was here in 2022. So, you know, it was was pretty incredible. And uh, I mean, what a jewel. Massachusetts Street, or as we call it, Mass Street. I mean, it really is a pretty cool place. And, you know, it, it, it hurts me when I hear that people think our downtown's not safe. So I've got to find out why. And so we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be figuring that out. We're going to be intentional about figuring out why. Because I think it's safe. And if, but, you know, I have a different perspective. And so, you know, you guys probably all think it's safe, but you have a different perspective as well. So we'll, we'll be working on that.
2: Just two quick questions, um, Chief. For you, um, on the co-responder, you said we lost our co-responder. Just to be clear, you meant not our our police officer co-responder, no. our, our other side of that.
22: Right. Apologies. Thank you for uh, that clarifying question. We lost the mental health worker um, because he was good, and they told him to go. Leave you the director at the treatment center.
2: And, and is that is that mental health? provider employed by us? Or is that someone yes, we contract with? He is, yes. So so we're looking to fill that position now.
22: We're not looking to fill it. They fill it and assign them to us. We're part of that process. Okay. But uh, I just had a meeting with Patrick last week uh, and uh, he's supposed to be getting me an update on that. I think they're getting closer to getting a replacement for Luke. Perfect, thank you.
2: Chief Hagan, quick question for you on how are we doing on Pulse Point? Are, are people signing up on it? What, do we have data on that yet? We do have data. I don't have it
21: with <laughs> me tonight. So we launched it on October of 2021. So uh, we're about six months in. Uh, we're really excited about uh, this summer, getting out more in the community now that the community is opening up here as COVID numbers have, have come down. Um, public education is something that we really Um, Need to continue to work on. Currently, we rely on our emergency resources to do that. And so that does displace them uh, within the community when they're doing that work, although it's very valuable work and we've got to do it. Um, But uh, we're looking at uh, maximizing our impact through partners. Right now, we're focused on uh, training with uh, city employees, as I was talking about with MSO. Um, But I can get you some data on our subscribers um, within the community. One thing that is great about that is those are essentially agents that are always out there in the community um, to where if there is an arrest in a public location, a sudden cardiac arrest in a public location, and they are in a certain proximity to that, it will give them alert and tell them that help is needed. And they're not compelled or required to do it, but it just says that if you're able and you're willing, somebody needs your help right now. And so with the amount of uh, community events that we have, There are so many opportunities for us to do great things. Just I do have data on bystander intervention, however, though. So our current bystander intervention rate on cardiac arrests in public locations is 25%. The national average is around 40. And so we are underperforming comparatively to the national average on bystander intervention on on CPR. So we need to get better in that space, too. And that's part of our mission on providing education and that sixth E, right? Empowerment of, their, of our community to, to if you see something, do something. You heard Carl talking about that earlier tonight.
2: Nice. I assume this is the case, but, you know, when Carl was talking about the classes at um, the j Club or whatever, I mean, I assume at the end of a class, when someone gets trained, are we have a handout to provide to everyone and ha- asking them to sign up for Pulse Point if they're interested? Is that something, are we working with the providers like the Red Cross and stuff? So we we are not actively working
21: with um, many other third party groups. That is an opportunity for us. Most of the courses that we're putting on are um, internal within uh, the city currently. Um, our objective, uh, and as we're looking towards the future, is to get to the basics, to not have the pressure of tying it to a certification, tying it to hey, what's the you know what are all the numbers that you need to know push hard and push fast, you're gonna save a life. You're gonna be the difference. Um, There's lots of communities that have a pop-up hands-only CPR stand. We could put one on that corner down here on mass. Uh, We could do some things in the future that are really neat uh, that really just provides that basic level of education and have a QR reader for somebody that would take them to the link to download the app. Those are great opportunities as we look towards the future. Thank you.
5: Any other questions? Yeah, one more question for Chief Lockhart. Um, your, um, one of your commitment areas, which is equity and inclusion, um, you went over that quite a bit and I really appreciate that. Are you working with our equity and inclusion director, um, Dr. Muhammad on making sure that it aligns with what the strategic plan is doing with the city?
22: I'm still on my listening tour. So he and I have visited. Um, we haven't made any policy decisions yet, but that will, he will be part of that. Um, one of the things that Community Police Review Board uh, asked for last week in our meeting was to include him as part of that working group. So we are looking to incorporate him uh, into that as well. Um, he's a very important member of the city. He's got uh, an additional staff member. I know he's very busy, so we'll be respectful of his time, but we will definitely include him into uh, any policy making decisions that we have going forward that might affect diversity and inclusion within the police department and without or outside of the police department.
5: Great, thank you. Thank You're you very much. much. Thanks. Chief Fagan, yeah, if you could, you,
22: how are Yeah, you? I was
21: gonna add to that. Yeah. yeah, I could. So Dr. Muhammad's on the safe and secure team. Great. So he is the representative from the equity and inclusion commitment on our outcome team. So he is a part of that work that we're doing. Thank you. Yep.
0: Any further questions? Okay, let's make sure there's no one who wants to make public comment on this item. We probably won't answer it till we discuss, but go ahead and ask us, thank you.
22: Um, my question is mainly for Chief Lockhart. You talked about Kalia training. I think that's a great could, thing.
0: Sorry, Eric, could, could you direct your questions to us? It's okay, <clears throat> we'll get them answered.
22: Okay, there's three aspects to CALEA. Um, It's a triarch system, there's the emergency communications, the officer training, the officers themselves and the training. Um, LPD trains its own people uh, and this is a multi-year process. I'm kind of curious about what LPD's goals are as far as the TriArc certification, and then secondary to that is if we're going to become Calia certified here, where is our training going to come from?
17: Thank you.
23: Hello, my name is Seamus Auburn. I'm a representative of Lawrence Professional Firefighters. I appreciate this uh, being on the agenda tonight. I know there's a lot of hard work, and it, it uh, proves that there's already a high interest in trying to make some of these recommendations happen. There's uh, not a whole lot I can point out about what's going on in the fire department that Chief Fagan has already done a great job. But I am here to ask on behalf of the firefighters that we act on the interest and act on those recommendations and do so when we go through the budget process this year and begin funding some of these stations. As Chief pointed out, since the last time we added fire trucks and ambulances to the city, our call volume has grown 62% and, uh, plus, and we're headed in a direction where it will be even higher than that. That's tremendous. That's a tremendous growth in workload without any growth in the workforce. And that's a burden that's on our firefighters. And it's also a burden on our community because it's compounding all our issues, it's compounding our slowing response times. So as a department, we maintain this this attitude, this belief that we can overcome a lot of our challenges with innovation, with good training, with good tools. And it has led to command staff and the membership working together to get faster dispatching, better EMS protocols, better equipment, and we have the data, as Chief pointed out, to show that we are very good at our job. And we're excellent at our job when we can get there at our prescribed benchmarks and our prescribed uh, our goals with our response times. What we can't out-train for or out-innovate is not getting there in time to even make a difference. That's what the station optimization study is about. And those are the things that we need to address. So if we believe in public safety, if safe and secure is more than just a strategic initiative in a plan, we're gonna need more firefighters. We're gonna need more stations. We're gonna need more ambulances. And we're gonna need more people to do that. I know everybody here knows that. Um, and I trust that that is a priority. We're just asking for the tools to continue to do the good job that we're already doing. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Any further public comment on this item?
13: And Boyle, North Lawrence improvement. Uh, Yeah, you know, uh, we've talked about this before, response time to North Lawrence. And uh, this has been, uh, I mean, the response time from the fire department and the police department, but mainly fire department is within three or four minutes if the traffic's right. if the underpass is flooded uh then uh, the traffic's diverted across the railroad tracks at 7th street and then the fire department can't get to the north side of north lawrence so this is becoming a uh, you know i i've been doing this for 25 years man and uh, i've said this so many times it's it sounds like a recording and uh Underpass needs a backup generator. Last year, eight of the failures that we had, seven of them was because lack of power from Evergy. The eighth one was a mechanic failure of a pump down there, and we got new pumps put in. But we're still, we got spring coming up, storms coming up, underpass is going to flood. The traffic's deterred through North Lawrence. Uh, The trains come by, traffic can't get through. So, uh, you know, if the underpass didn't flood, if we had a backup generator under the underpass, that would alleviate the train problem, the traffic problem. You know, just buy a generator, backup generator under the underpass. And, you know, I've even mentioned the big pump at 6th and Maple. That's a natural gas. Uh, generator, backup generator, uh, you know, and I've even suggested to you about running power from that generator down to the uh, pumps down at the underpass and what, see what the feasibility of that was. Never heard no response on it. So the underpass is the bottleneck and the health, safety and welfare, of the people on the north side of the railroad tracks are in jeopardy when the underpass floods. So, and I applaud the fire department and the police department for their response time to North Lawrence. And I know their response time, man. I I, I live right on the levee, 310 Elm. And when those trucks sirens fire up, I can tell what direction they're going. And if they're coming to North Lawrence, it's always three, four minutes they hit the uh, North Bank. So thank you for your time. But get us a generator.
0: Thanks, Ted. Any further comments in, in the room? Uh, sh- is there anyone online who would like to make comments to this item? Chris Flowers.
3: Hi, this is Chris Flowers. And one of the things I that struck out or stuck out to me was um, the officers in schools. Uh, we were told, like, the good things they do, such as... Um, finding out that the kid wasn't coming to school because he didn't have shoes. But my thing... When I heard that, I was thinking, well, isn't this something that any school worker could do? Like, I mean, couldn't a a guidance counselor or a teacher figure this stuff out? Like, I mean, this isn't something that we should be expecting cops to do. I mean, we can, but wouldn't it be better to to ask that, like, guidance counselors or teachers do this stuff? Like, people that are, are trained to help kids as opposed to, like, the cops? Um, Also, another thing I've just been wondering about is how come the LHS cars are decorated? Like, are those cop cars just for high school or can they pull over people on the road like a regular cop? Because if they can, I don't think we should be having cartoon animals on our police cars, like pulling people over. Because when I saw those, I thought, well, this is Lawrence High Security. And if someone tried pulling me over, I might just think that's just campus security and not actual police. So I'm kind of curious why the those cop cars need to be decorated with the LHS lion. And then when it comes to emergency response times, I like just to point out again, especially what is it? Pulse point, I guess, where we're letting citizens be alerted so they can get to the scene to help someone with CPR. I just like to point out those those speed bumps on Mass Street getting down to the the dorms at at Haskell if every minute counts those speed bumps they're gonna slow down anyone coming down Mass Street to get to, to the Haskell dorms and also like other speed bumps well I mean the other speed bumps are nowhere near as bad as the one on Haskell or on on Mass Street going into Haskell campus but some of those other speed bumps I've read articles where speed bumps actually kill as many people as they save just because they slow down emergency response times and the amount of people they're actually saving might not always be, you know, that high. But so I guess those are just some of my questions. And I'd also like to just um, Say, I appreciate the work the new chief is doing at reaching out to people because I've I've seen some comments online of him trying to reach out to some of the people criticizing the police. So I, I do like to give credit where it's due. So anyway, those are just my thoughts, thank you.
0: Thank you, any further comment online? That's all the comments, Mayor. Okay, let's bring it back to the commission. Let's make sure um, we address Mr. Aravi's questions about Kalia.
22: So CALIA is a a very long accreditation process. It takes about three years. Uh, One of the things I like about it, it's an international program. They call it the gold standard. There's about 165, um, think of them like key performance measures for accreditation. So they're standards that you have to meet. The nice thing about CALEA is you have to have an approved policy, but the most important part of having an, an approved policy is that you have to show that you follow the policy. So within the system, and we already have the system for policy acknowledgement, it's called Power DMS. You load your policy in, officers and, and non-sworn members acknowledge that they've read it and they understand it. It keeps a record of that in the system. And then you upload what's called proofs to that system as well so that when the assessors come in, they can see – that you had three instances over this three year evaluation period where you documented following that policy if you're not able to follow a policy and sometimes you you can't come up with a proof then you can provide training and within the module there are you can upload training videos you can upload training scenarios and tests that will uh, be required by each officer and then that's documented in there as a proof one of the really great things about CALEA accreditation is when the accreditation team comes to town, they visit with all of you as elected officials, but then they will also visit with members of our community and they will allow them an opportunity to evaluate the police department to determine whether or not we're meeting the standards as outlining CALEA. Uh, one of Michael's questions was about training. Um, we are sending our officers to KLETC right now. I think that was the question. Um, we've got another batch going out there right now. Part of that is because we're not getting enough applicants to be able to train them in our own academy here. So they go down to Hutchison for 16 weeks and then they come back to us for 16 weeks of field training. We've got a graduation coming up, I believe, Trent, is that next week? Um, I think it's next week. Uh, Yours truly is the graduation speaker. So I'm really looking forward to that to represent our community in a way um, uh, that, that will show of what we're doing here in lawrence so
0: um another question here the decoration of the LHS and Free State. It's not
22: just LHS. They both have a vehicle. Yeah, so that the the cars are identical to a regular Lawrence police car with the exception of the back where we've wrapped them with uh, a tiger for LHS and a free bird for Free State.
2: A lion. Oh, lion. <laughs>
22: it's a chesty lion. Chesty
17: lion. <laughs> Apologies.
22: Hey, at least I'm not in Warrensburg tonight. I have not made that, uh, that goof up. So um, it's a chesty lion, yes. Thank you for that correction. I apologize. I think Commissioner Sellers may need some CPR (laughs) (laughs) Grabbing her chest, so. I have no pearls. (laughs) Part of what that is, those cars are are just driven by the SROs and they're designed to be able to create a conversation uh, with the kids about the cars. Uh, Dr. Lewis was very supportive of it. And uh, it's it's just a way to be able to connect with our community and start a conversation uh, with our kids in a way that's not threatening. Um, Cars are something that everyone bonds over and i've got a i've got a 1964 corvair and when i drive that thing I, I mean more people come up to me and they're like what is that car and and you know in Kansas City we had three different show cars that were police cars we had a, a low rider we had a drag car and we had um i can't remember what the fourth one was but Um, it's just, you take these out to community events and it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter gender. It doesn't matter anything. um, People start talking about cars because it's just unusual. And so um, the cars are legal to pull people over. um, And so uh, uh, in our mind, it's marked up just like a regular Lawrence car. So we feel like it's not creating the issues that, uh, that were identified earlier. Thank
0: you, chief. I might, Unless there's any further questions for Chief Wally's standing there. I did have one for you, Chief. All the Chiefs. Um, I hate to open this can of worms because I feel like know the answer, but I want to be sure I guarantee, since the question was asked, when certain certain changes are made to the roadways that the fire department is absolutely consulted in those and absolutely indicates what is and isn't possible for you to use your equipment on. Is
21: that correct? Yes, we're involved in that planning process. Yeah, and that is essential. I mean, we need to be aware if there's road closures, impacts to that. Examples uh, of that here recently are um, some of the special events that occurred over the past couple weeks with the NCAA Final Four and the championship game. If there is a known traffic impact to the bridge, we are going to put it responders in North Lawrence because of the delayed impact to the bridge. So yes, the key is, is you know, if there is a planned impact and I, when we we're up in the emergency operations center, we had cameras watching the bridge mm-hmm. to see how traffic was, was flowing there to make sure that you know, we had good egress. Mm
0: -hmm. I'm also referring though to um, speed bumps and traffic circles and roundabouts and things that you would need to navigate on a regular basis that some people just don't like. But I do wanna make sure that you are also involved in those processes.
21: Yes, but it is a fact that it does impact our ability to provide the quality that if they were not there, but they are uh, risk reduction strategies to, to reduce speed but it does also reduce our speed to arrive at emergency events, but we are a part of that process as well.
0: Thank you. Yes. Any other comments or questions, commissioners? Ooh, thank you. Thank you very much. Good job.
15: Yes, thank you. (laughs)
0: Um, All right, well then let's move on to commission items. Any items commissioners wanna bring up? Ooh, okay. Uh, City manager's report.
11: Thank you, Mayor. We, uh, there's four different items on there the future work session items utility billing report you're used to seeing. Um, I do wanna point out, because I've only done two of these since I've been here, uh, the notification of the um, variance from the guidelines for the in-city employment of relatives. It, we have a policy that requires that we make sure that you're aware of that when we make those variances. Uh, we've been very careful in, in analyzing this. Like I said, it's only happened twice uh, since I've been here um, and I uh, feel like it's, it's an appropriate thing, particularly in the hiring environment that we have, but um, we think that, that that is an appropriate move for us. And then the other item is um, the uh, just an update on the, uh, the item that we did a lot of work on and then kind of set aside for the right timing to um, look towards a, a potential ballot issue on the potential uh, consideration of local government uh, form changes. So happy to answer any questions on any of those four.
0: I would just say be sure that we know about those public. If we're having open houses, I know there was a situation where we weren't really always aware that they were having some of those discussions with the um, uh, advisory board. So I'm sure lots of us are very interested in hearing what people say. Maybe not being involved, but hearing what people say. Yeah, of course. So yeah, just wanted to say that. Any other questions or comments? I have
5: a question about that. Um... It, it sounds like from reading the memo that you're asking for direction as to whether or not we're interested interested in putting it on the ballot this year. Um, is that a discussion we need, need to have like on a, an agenda item or um, whatever? Is there an election this year? I don't think there's, a, at least not for city commissioners, not an election. Is there one for county? There's a- yeah. 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 yeah, there's, a,
2: there's-, there's- the there's governor of yeah, county, yeah. yeah.
11: So at least two of you weren't here when we got last direction on that. <laughs> um, and so uh, we're we're kind of moving in the direction that we last got, uh, which, which was that um, we did want to backdate it so that it could be considered on a November ballot. If that's different, then we'd want to know. Um, but otherwise, we're kind of moving in that direction.
4: No, I understood it as the timeline was public engagement decision to be made sometime prior to getting language to our county clerk. And then, so I, I understood it correctly and I watched the rerun. <laughs> uh,
0: any other questions? this is a public comment item. Is there any public comment on the city manager's report? Is there any public comment online to the city manager's report? Chris Flowers.
3: I am um, this is Chris Flowers and I would just like to point out that since when th- this process was first started the 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 republicans in the state hadn't passed their legislation and I think from what my understanding is at least from what the democrats are saying is that it's now a lot harder to be voting by mail. So if that's the case, I think we like I think the the original decision that the the government task force found was that in the future we should consider about maybe looking into switching out of having a primary and going to rank choice. But I I just think with the changes that have been made and making it harder to vote by by mail that us as a college town where at least at least I mean 10 to 15% of our population is gone when the primary happens, I think we should be looking we, we should be looking more into passing the primary just because We're going to have so many people out of town that are going to have to be voting through and like through the mail so. I, I don't know. I just think that's something y'all should be looking into. I think it's something that if we're having open houses, we should be, we should be looking at that. Because it was something that the, the the government task force said is something to be looked at in the future. But I think it's something that, that should be looked at more in the present with the changes that had that the Republicans have made just to how advanced voting and like voting by mail, like how much harder it is now. So I've just thrown that out there. Thank you.
0: Any other public comment? That's it. Okay, that brings us uh, to the calendar. Any calendar items that need updating or commenting on? Doesn't look like it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would entertain any motions. Move to adjourn. Second. Have first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 That passes five to zero. Thank you, everyone.